1: got some very cool special guests including musical acts that we all love like karina reichman daniel donato jake brownstein from eggy rick and peter from goose and many more tune in for new episodes dropping on osiris media march 5th on the best show ever podcast
2: acast powers the world's best
3: podcasts here's a show that we recommend
1: all right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit 1 million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top. of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached one million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts.
2: Hey, guys, want to tell you about a company that sells Grateful Dead related clothes. It's called Section 119. And they've made clothes for members of the Grateful Dead. Mickey Hart wears their socks. Apparently Bob Weir is going to be wearing one of their suits after this whole coronavirus thing goes away. They sell wallets, they sell socks, they sell boxers. They sell golf gear, they, they sell all sorts of things. What you want to do is you want to go to section119.com, that's section119.com, and enter in the code 36 from the vault upon checkout, and you'll get 20% off your first purchase. So if you're looking for some cool jam band gear, go to that website right now. Again, that's section119.com.
3: As you've probably guessed about two 40-something guys with the Grateful Dead podcast, both Steve and I are bearded gentlemen. But we're professional wooks, and we like to keep those beards sharp and clean. The thing is, when you're only shaving your neck, buying razors at the store especially feels like a hassle. That's why I'm excited about Harry's. I got a fancy new razor in the mail from Harry's, gave it a try, and it was a huge upgrade over my dirty old blade. The shaving gel was also a treat. I tend to be a stingy store-brand-X kind of guy, So using something with an actual scent and a smooth lather, it was like going to the barbershop. At a time when I'm really avoiding trips to the store, getting quality shaving supplies shipped to my house is a real luxury. Harry's gives you quality, durable blades at a fair price. Just $2 a blade. The refills are delivered to you on your own schedule, with or without a subscription, which is great for us bearded dudes who don't need to buy new blades as often. They also have a 100% guarantee, if you don't love your shave, let them know, and you'll receive a full refund. And one percent of all Harry's proceeds go to nonprofits providing healthcare access for men and veterans. Now you can join the 10 million people who have tried Harry's with a special trial offer. Listeners can redeem their Harry's trial set at Harrys.com/slash36ftv. You're going to get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade. Rich, lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated. And a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com slash 36ftv to start shaving better today. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm pretty sure the only actual member of the dead that we have both interviewed is bruce
2: hornsby right well i've interviewed mickey uh yeah and i've
3: interviewed bob over email <laughs> if that counts <laughs> it was a very terse email
2: but, but, uh, but, but yeah but yeah in terms of like us both interviewing the same guy yeah we've we've both interviewed bruce hornsby which was a pleasure right. i love talking to bruce
3: Yeah, he is, like, uh, you would expect from his music that he'd be a super, like, chill, nice guy, I think. But he's also a very honest guy. (laughs) Like, he does not pull any punches And talking about his time with the Grateful Dead. And it's just a lot of fun talking to him about it.
2: Yeah, and the thing with Bruce is that he's also a very self-assured person, I think. Um, Which I think goes along with him being honest. But, uh, yeah, he's not a guy... I don't think he's arrogant or anything, but he definitely believes in his own ability, I think. Uh, Yeah. Which was cool to talk to him. Not just as a musician, but as a basketball player as well. (laughs) That's right. Because I think basketball... That was the other thing
3: we share in common is that both of us ended up talking about basketball. Yeah. uh, With Bruce Hornsby, even though we were ostensibly interviewing him about (laughs) The Grateful Dead. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, how, how did you get on that topic? You had a, you, well, I, you asked him about it,
4: right?
2: Yeah, I brought it up because I'd read the story about how he had played Allen Iverson in one-on-one basketball in the early '90s, and uh, because apparently Bruce had been involved in this campaign to get Allen Iverson out of jail. You know, I don't know if you know that whole story about him. Like when he was a senior in high school, he was involved in this like brawl at a bowling alley and uh he was in prison for a while and hornsby basically like lobbied the governor to like help get him out of prison uh <laughs> which is pretty incredible i mean there's like a i think there's like a 30 for 30 documentary about this uh whole story wow. okay. i don't know if hornsby's <laughs> in it but like it's, yeah it was does a, it
3: have the one-on-one game
2: No, there's no one-on-one. There's no thirty-for-thirty on the one-on-one between Hornsby and Iverson. Although I think there should be, but yeah, apparently they, they, you know, Iverson was was you know felt a lot of gratitude towards Hornsby, so they got together, and somehow they ended up playing one-on-one. And Hornsby said he just had a great day, and he didn't miss that day, and he and he beat Allen Iverson at one-on-one. Wow. Yeah. Really. So, yeah, Hornsby can ball, man. He can ball. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so my Hornsby basketball story, he, he brought this up. I, I went back and looked at the transcript, and I think I was interviewing him about, well, I, was, I know I was interviewing him about the Day of the Dead compilation, and I was talking about changing attitudes about the dead and how more people were warming up to the dead, and he somehow twisted that into talking about how Thad Mata, the former basketball coach of Ohio State, got into the dead because of bruce hornsby and it had something to do with bruce's son keith who played college basketball but not for ohio state right i think he played for lsu or something like that
2: yeah something like that
3: somehow yeah Hornsby's like yeah you know thad mata he didn't really like the dead but then he started listening to the sirius xm channel and i gave him some shows to listen to and he really got into the dead and i'm like how did i end up talking to bruce hornsby about College basketball coaches, getting into the Grateful Dead. It was a very surreal moment. So, but yeah, great interview, great guy. We're gonna talk a lot of Bruce in this episode, and uh yeah, the other the other basketball thing that's come up around the time of this recording is you know we've both been watching the Last Dance on ESPN, right?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely, loving it. Yeah, and I mean like you're a Chicago yeah. guy, so and you were like at a lot of those games, like at least in the early '90s. Yeah, yeah, as I a was, Bulls fan, I
3: was—I was lucky. My dad had season tickets for the first three peats. So oh I was, my God! Uh, at some really historic games, and yeah, it's fun reliving all this stuff. Um, but one thing I was reminded of is, you know, Bill Walton sort of gets all the press as being like, you know, the number one Grateful Dead fan, at least the number one sports-related Grateful Dead fan. Uh, but I think people forget that Phil Jackson was, you know, sort of the NBA's second. Most prominent hippie uh and still is in some ways, I guess, and so all this like nineties footage of and and earlier footage of Phil Jackson wearing like you know hippie overalls and then wearing the Jerry Garcia ties in the nineties and all this stuff, it made me remember and try and go back and learn some more about you know what shows Phil Jackson saw, and I think we've kind of deduced that he very likely was at the show we're discussing today because. You know, 1990, September, it's before the season starts, probably preseason. But he said he went to a lot of dead shows. He went to a lot of Madison Square Garden shows and supposedly would post up right behind the drummers uh, during the show. Uh, And, you know, Phil Jackson's a tall guy. So uh, one thing to maybe add to your experience of listening to Dix Picks 9 is to imagine a very tall 90s Phil Jackson sort of standing behind Bill and Mickey, maybe even grabbing them like that famous Sports Illustrated cover with Jordan and Scotty, like sort of pulling them back. Right. That's how I'm going to listen to it now.
2: Well, I mean, I think we can definitely say that Bill is the Jordan of the rhythm section and Mickey would be the the Scotty Pippin. you know? So, like, <laughs> I, 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 I think it's obvious to say, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like they always say, there's always a Grateful Dead connection. And uh, in some small way, I think we can say that the Bulls dynasty of the '90s is due in part to the Grateful Dead. I, mean, yeah, I think we can say that. You know, it, <laughs> it imbued a certain spirituality. I think into Phil Jackson, and he can it's true. He, he carried that over uh, to the Chicago Bulls. So, uh, congratulations to the Grateful Dead for all your NBA championships.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, this is uh, 36 from the vault, and we're here tonight to talk about another '90s dynasty. Uh, The Grateful Dead in the 90s. How was that for a segue? That's great.
2: (laughs) And we're presented by Osiris, by the way. And uh, we love Osiris. And yeah, this is Picks 9 September 16th, 1990, from Madison Square Garden, New York, New York. And uh, yeah, The Grateful Dead is a dynasty. Are we going to call this show one of the championships for The Grateful Dead? I don't know if we can go that far uh for yeah. for Dick's Picks 9. This shows in adv- it's an adventure, you know. I, I it's you know, we just did Dick's Picks 8, which I think we can all agree is like one of the greatest Grateful Dead shows of all time. We've yeah. done a couple other I think shows that people uh, would, would would put near the top for the Grateful Dead. Um this is a curveball. This is definitely a curveball. We did our curveball episode on Fish. (laughs) Yeah. But this is like a curveball Dick's Picks, I I think. This was
3: Dick's curveball. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I think like even for, you know, because I've talked in the past about how I have an affinity for the early 90s Grateful Dead. It was like uh, some of the first shows I heard were, were from this era. I'm also a big fan of Bruce Hornsby with the Grateful Dead. And uh, we'll get into that later in this episode, you know, what he brings, uh, to the band. Um, but this is an unusual choice, I feel like, uh, to put into this series. Uh, you know, for, for 1990, I think there were other, maybe more obvious choices to pick for this series. And even from this run, I feel like there were other shows that made more sense than this show, um... Yeah. Uh, it it's just kind of interesting to me how this ended up being one of the Dick's picks.
3: Yeah, this is a weird choice. I think it's probably I mean, we got to go back to 5 and 6 to come up with maybe stranger choices. Uh and there's a, you know, I did the digging and I can't really figure out entirely why he chose this show. <laughs> there wasn't like a good interview that was Dick raving about, you know. The standing on the moon and that's why you had to get this show out into the world but uh yeah there's a lot to talk about even if it's not maybe our favorites uh to spoil sort of the way this conversation is gonna go uh i think that's you know fair to say
2: yeah it's yeah it's um it's not our favorite but like i'm gonna say this at the beginning this is i think the weirdest dick's picks that we've done so far, like the in terms of like there are uh, just like the the quantity of like genuinely kind of weird music, and I mean that in good and bad ways uh, that exist yeah. on this album. Um, sure. And you know, with the Grateful Dead, when you say the word weird, sometimes I think you mean you, you know psychedelic or or experimental or or free form, and I think those adjectives apply to this record. But it's also weird and sort of like. Maybe negative ways as well too. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's a record that I find myself liking more in theory than as a listening experience. Like, there's certain aspects mm-hmm. of this record that I think, like, oh, like I'm I'm glad this this exists in the series, but I don't especially enjoy listening to parts of this <laughs> record necessarily <laughs> as much as like you right. know. I feel like I can throw on Dick's Pick 7, you know, like that 74 set and just be in total enjoyment. And obviously that that applies yeah. to 8 and many other Dick's Picks that we've heard so far. But uh, this one, um, it's a rough go Yeah, at, at times.
3: I think of all the ones we've listened to so far, this is the one that will uh, collect some dust after we're <laughs> done recording the episode tonight. <laughs> I will not be in a rush to get back to uh, Dick's Picks 9 uh, for a lot of reasons. But anyway, let's let's break down sort of the background of the episode or the, the volume a little bit.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, it was released on October 18th, 1997.
3: Right. Not so that... it's only seven years after the show itself, which is pretty Interesting,
2: and there are, and again, you know, as I referred to earlier, you know, in 1990, I feel like when people talk about '90, they always talk about the spring tour, you know, and right. obviously, there were, you know, there's been several albums, uh, or a couple albums that have been released from that march run that they did you know there's dozen at the nick which are which is comprised of shows from you know march 24th through the 26th and there's that came
3: out just a year before this volume too so right two successive years they released 1990 you know collections
2: and and then there was wake up to find out which came out in 2014 that's from march 29th um And there was a road trips record that came out from this September run, essentially Mm -hmm. a compilation of three shows later in the runs, September 18th through the 20th. And you and I both revisited that while we were listening to Dick's Picks 9. And I mean, I think we both agree that that road trips record is like way better than this Dick's Picks 9.
3: Yeah. No, I would absolutely go back to that. Long before I would go back to this volume, uh, there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, I think it's pretty well accepted that you know the Dead in the '90s were a bit inconsistent. Not not so much in 1990. 1990, I think, is the consensus last good year of the Grateful Dead. Uh, not only like the, I mean, the spring 1990 stuff looms very large for Deadheads, uh, and it's also sort of Brent's swan song uh but then people really like these fall 90 shows too i think and uh liked a lot of what bruce brought to the band and sort of the fresh energy of having bruce and vince uh on board at the end of the year so it's uh it's a very well revered year uh but yeah the uh the road trips one you know the inconsistency of the dead from night to night you can cover up by sort of cherry picking the highlights from a run like that road trips volume does. So it basically takes like big chunks of the second set from a couple of those shows and then a I think one or two songs from the third show, but it gives you like the meat of the show without everything else that's around it and I I haven't listened to all of those shows so I don't know uh you know what what didn't make it to the cut, but that's just like two really solid discs taken from three nights and shows you what this lineup of the band could, you know, was really capable of. Uh, at this point, Uh, whereas this one is, you know, Volume 9 is very warts and all, I think, and also just a weird, like a little bit more, I don't know, tentative performance, and we'll get into why that is.
2: Well, yeah, this has been sort of an ongoing thing that we've talked about uh, in, in our first season going through these Dix picks where, you know, there's examples of shows that were compilations of a couple shows and then shows that were essentially just, unvarnished versions of, uh, of complete performances of the Grateful Dead performed. And I think that you and I tend to be purists and that like, we'd like to hear an entire show. Um, but I feel like this is an example of going the other way where the compilation route sometimes can be the better way to go. And as you just said, it seems like this was maybe a good period to go the compilation route. Um, Right, You know, because obviously like in 90, the big difference between the spring tour and the fall tour is that Brent was still alive for the spring tour and that were a very well-oiled machine at that point, uh, you know, from touring with Brent for, you know, over 10 years. And then into this fall tour, they were working with two new keyboardists um, and – in in this, you know, we'll transition into our conversation about Dick's Picks 9. I mean, this show, September 16th, it was like only the seventh show with Vince, and I think it was like the second show with Bruce, right? Yeah. And it was sort of like, it it, it was like a weird arrangement having two guys essentially perform the role that Brent performed by himself for a really long time.
3: Yeah, I mean, I feel like, I, I agree, this is... A good case for compilations, like comparing these two sets. And also, I think maybe my feelings have sort of evolved even over these first nine volumes where I, I I almost would prefer more compilations than full shows to some extent. And I feel like that's a way that the Dick's Pick series, you know, at the time, there wasn't easy access to every show ever online and streaming. Um, but like, I almost kind of like prefer now sort of the curated highlights approach because you can now, nowadays at least go and find the complete show if you want to be a completist about it. So yeah, just particularly for these more uneven eras, I think the compilation route was the way to go. And it's just kind of like a trick of the timing, I guess, or maybe it's has to do with what sort of tapes they had available at that time that, you know, in these first run of Dick's picks, the full shows tend to be later grateful dead shows. <laughs> like the only full shows we've had so far have been the two eighty shows. And now this show, so yeah, five, six, and nine, because uh, even the Harper College one cut out one song. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's a bit uneven, but yeah, a big reason for that is you know the fact that they dropped two whole new members on, to, on the stage at <laughs> like the very week of this of this concert.
2: Well, and and definitely the headline with Dix Picks Nine is that this is two keyboard Grateful Dead. You know, we you know we we talked a lot about. You know, entering the Brent zone, you know, early, early, you know, earlier in this season. Now we're in the Vince and Bruce zone, and I feel like you know, it, it is a fascinating narrative with these two guys because on one hand you have Bruce Hornsby, who um, I think is beloved among Deadheads. I mean, I think people really embraced what he brought into the band, and then you have Vince Wellnick. Who, um, I feel like his legacy is a little, little bit more checkered than Bruce. Mm-hmm. Um, and not entirely of his own, you know, not entirely of his own fault, really. I mean, I, th- I feel like Vince was essentially put into an impossible position. I mean, it's my understanding that, like, Bruce was brought on board first. And then Vince was brought on. And the idea with Vince was that he was going to be the synth like the synthesizer guy. And he was going to kind of do like what what Brent did on the synths, even though Vince himself was also a piano player. And I think he learned the songs on piano. Um, And (laughs) so it was a very awkward thing for Vince to have to play with Bruce. And really it seems like the idea with Bruce was that, um, you know, they needed another guy because they knew that Bruce was not going to be a full-time player. And even though they probably liked Bruce more, like they would have wanted him to be the full-time guy. Um, But they had to have this other guy because they knew Bruce had his own career essentially and he was going to leave eventually and focus on that.
4: Yeah.
3: No, I mean, the cards were definitely stacked against Vince from the very beginning. And it's really, it's a pretty tragic story. Like it's, you know, it's very easy to rag on Vince. And, you know, other than Donna, he's probably the biggest punching bag in Grateful Dead lore, but it's it's a little crazy when you sit down and look at the timeline of 1990 because Brent's had only died; it was less than two months before this show. So, I mean, it was like it's Brent crazy. died, and they were on the road again like six weeks later. Because I think the start of September is when they were back. Uh, they started the fall tour, um, and yeah, like
2: yeah, yeah, Brent dies, like at the end of July, essentially. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean. It, I mean, it's terrible. I mean, but the deta- I mean, like he, I mean, he died of a drug overdose and he was by his Nintendo. Yeah. He was a big right? gamer.
3: I learned that from uh, one of the biographies. I forget which one, but he was really into early Nintendo games. And that's where they found him, which is, yeah. Like,
2: do, we know, do we know what he was playing? Was he playing like Mike Tyson's Punch Out or? It was or uh, golf.
3: I believe it was one of the golf games. I don't think it was oh, specific man. in what I read, but he was big into Nintendo golf.
2: Oh Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So, so he uh, dies and like and the dead are just like, you know, we're not going to stop. Yeah. Yeah, G- there's really no discussion of them stopping.
3: And Jerry was crushed and I think Jerry wanted to stop, but this is like yet another period in Grateful Dead history where the train was just rolling down the tracks and nobody could stop it even though everybody probably knew that was the right thing to do at least temporarily.
2: So they you went just in like and out of respect.
3: Yeah, I know. They would have stopped. You I think know, they but... canceled like three shows that they were gonna play out at uh in Mountain View, Shoreline. Uh that was all they cancelled. <laughs> and they just they ran interview <laughs> they ran auditions as fast as they could. They only auditioned four people. Uh and Vince was the one they chose. The other ones are actually pretty interesting that they auditioned and it's like Yet another fun alternate dimension Grateful Dead game to play because they, uh, have you ever read this list before? They auditioned Ian McLagan from uh, The Faces. Yeah. So bringing it back to earlier discussion points and Pete Sears, who did a lot of Rod Stewart albums, I didn't realize. I I know him more for uh, Jefferson Starship and Starship work. Uh, So they very much, the the Dead could have been even closer into the uh, Rodverse uh, than we've been talking about so far.
2: Well, and I'd heard that, like, Sears was, like, in serious contention to be the guy, but they picked Vince because he could sing the high parts that right. Brent could sing, and um, he also—and I, I and maybe he was also more conversant, like, with synth parts. I mean, the idea was basically just to, to find people that could do what Brent did, because they didn't right. want to, like, rearrange the songs. Like, they just wanted mm-hmm. to perform— the way that they had for like the last several years. Um, And I had read too that like when they hired Vince, they didn't even put out a press release about it because like they didn't want to like play up the idea that they had lost another keyboardist because, you know, this was like the third guy at that point who had died in the Grateful Dead, like, you know, the keyboardist. And of course Vince himself eventually passed away. In 2006, you know, in very tragic circumstances, like he took his own life by slitting his own throat, which probably shouldn't even go into that story because it's awful. Yeah. Um, But um, you know, uh, there was a real sort of like, well, let's just plug another guy in there, you know, because we need to keep this thing going, and they also having Bruce Hornsby.
3: Well, yeah, but and they, the thing with Vince, too, is that they kind of dictated to him. The rest of the band decided what Vince was going to play. <laughs> and they said, we're not going to let you play a real piano. We're not going to let you play an organ. Uh, supposedly, Jerry, this is a Jerry decision that he was, it reminded him too much of Brent's. Uh, that, you know, Brent's was so heavy on the organ sound that they didn't want an actual, you know, new Hammond B3 player out there. Uh, Which is insane. So they they set him up at this little, you know, tiny keyboard. (laughs) Like, it looks like, you know, the kind of Casio you would buy at home uh, in the 90s. Uh, He, by some reports, didn't even choose, like, the tones that he would play on that keyboard. They had Bob Braylove at this time, who was, like, their MIDI wizard, who worked with the drummers, and he worked with Bob, and he worked with Brent uh, before Brent passed away. And that there was a lot of, like, Bob Brelove on the side of the stage choosing what Vince's keyboard sounded like while he played. Which just seems like a bonkers way to (laughs) to operate. And a totally, like, impossible situation for Vince to be in. And this is all before they're like, we need to bring in, you know, this ringer who happens to be, like... One of the most commercially successful, like, piano players of,
2: like, the late 80s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, and, like... To ease his transition, yeah. And I gotta say, too, like, Bob Raylove, not doing a great job of picking the keyboard tones. And we'll and we'll get into that in this episode. There's, like, some <laughs> very questionable choices that Bob Raylove. If it is Bob Raylove who's deciding what, what Vince sounds like, very questionable choices. But, yeah, I mean, Vince was just... I mean, he was hamstrung, and, and and he was set up to be a guy. I mean, they weren't even, like, I, I, like the rest of the band, Like they weren't even, like, putting Vince in, like, the in-ear monitors, like, of the rest of the band, right? I mean, like, they, they couldn't even hear Vince. In a way, it kind of reminds me, this is, like, kind of a wacky comparison, but I think it's sort of apt. It reminds me of, like, when um Cliff Burton died in Metallica. Like, there's all these <laughs> stories about, like, how the rest of Metallica... Like they were really hard on Jason Newstead, like he was the new bass player in the band. And when you listen to the first record that Metallica made uh with Newstead and Justice for All, like you can't hear the bass. Yeah. And it was and it was like the rest of the band was so sad and like sort of fucked up about Cliff Burton dying that they took it out on the new guy who like had nothing to do with anything, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's, it's But it's like we can't really accept that this person died and we don't want to deal with it directly, so we're going to take it out on the new guy. And it seems like Vince was that in the band uh, at that time, uh, which is re- re- really rough on Vince. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you have Bruce coming in, um, which made it worse for Vince in a way to have someone like Bruce there. Because like, as you said, I mean, Bruce Hornsby in the late 80s it's kind of weird to think of this now, of like someone like Bruce Hornsby being a pop star, because it's so yeah. sort of antithetical to what we think about, like what pop music is like. But like Bruce Hornsby, like he had like you know like a number one hit with "The Way It Is." That's a number one hit. Uh, uh, "Mandolin Win," uh, "Mandolin Rain," excuse me, was a number four hit, I believe. Uh, yeah. No, that's one of those albums
3: it? that has like four or five singles that yeah you put it on it it's like thriller deep almost like <laughs> it just keeps yeah. going
2: yeah his first record the with the range yeah just, it just has tons of hits and like even like the record after that had the valley road i think was another top 10 hit i looked it up he had like six top 40 hits in the late 80s so wow. he was like a huge pop star um and i'm just gonna throw this out there bruce hornsby is my favorite keyboardist uh that is played in the dead, which is not the same thing as saying that he's my favorite dead keyboardist, because obviously... Okay. I'm going to explain the distinction. Obviously, you know, Keith and Brent have much deeper legacies than, than Bruce does. Like, if I were to say, you know, if I were to rank, like, my favorite, like, dead keyboardist, I would put those guys above Bruce. But just in terms of just pure musicians, you know, irrespective of, like, their time in the dead... Bruce is my favorite, and if I were to assemble like my dream Grateful Dead lineup, like Bruce Hornsby would be the guy I would pick because I think in a way um he was able I feel like he was able to kind of do everything that all the other guys could do like he could be um he could be a blues guy, he could be a jazzy guy, uh there's elements of like bluegrass in his playing, he's obviously has the soft rock background uh that that brent has i think he's like the best singer out of all those guys um and i find like when i listen to these early 90s shows like he's the guy i gravitate to just because i love his playing and i love what he brings where um on one hand i think that he has a real he has like a real muscular type you know style of playing you know he he his playing just cuts through the mix i think Unlike any other keyboardist that the Grateful Dead ever had, but right. at the same time, he also knew when to lay back, and we'll and we'll talk about this more in this episode because there's a lot going on, <laughs> you yeah. know, on stage. Sometimes there's a lot of noise going on, and he and he's talked about that about how sometimes he had to just hang back because there was so much other things going on, and he knew how to do that. But then he then knew when to like kind of pounce and you know, yeah even pushing jerry at times you know pushing him uh to be a little bit more active because this is really the beginning of of jerry you know started starting to enter that heroin fog of in <laughs> in some cases like literally nodding off on stage you know as we yeah. get deeper into the 90s
3: yeah no I, I i agree with all that and i think you know everybody knows by now that i'm a keith guy and i would still probably go keith but I can totally see how Bruce would sort of both... He can he can both play that Keith role of adding color and sort of, as you say, hanging back and letting other people shine and just sort of nibbling around the edges. But he has the advantage over Keith that he's a, he can be a much more active player if he wants to be. So the Keith moments where Keith steps up to the front of the mix are so fleetingly rare that I think we dedicated five minutes to one of them <laughs> in the first episode. <laughs> um, whereas Bruce, you know, when he is, when it's time for a, a piano solo from Bruce, he's, he's going to knock it out of the park every time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I love him on this show specifically because he brings back that piano, which I think is so key to, like, the Grateful Dead sound that I love. Uh, and which Brent just didn't really seem that interested in doing. I mean, I know he had a piano on stage, but he would often blend it with, you know, some synthesizer tones as well. So you don't just get like a nice, pure, soulful piano. And so coming back to that sound on some of these songs sounds really great. It's just, to me, a bit of a shame that there's, as you say, so much else going on (laughs) around it. And I'm kind of like, man, I just want Bruce to have a little bit more room to breathe here. And that's even one of the differences I find between volume 9 and the road trips is that I feel like even within this run they got a lot better at you know balancing out Vince and Bruce so that they weren't stepping on each other's toes and everybody else in the band wasn't stepping on their toes uh so they figured it out pretty quick I think but yeah again just insane that this is only Bruce's second show and they decided to put it out
2: <laughs> cuz it's interesting too and, and just to clarify like obviously I think Keith is the the best grateful dead keyboardist that there ever was. And, um, and he was in the band during, you know, pretty much their unquestioned artistic peak, like in the 70s. Um, it's, always, it's always interesting with me, with Bruce, it's like an interesting thought experiment, if things had worked out differently, if he had ended up being maybe the only keyboardist in the band. Like I know there was, I read an interview, like where Dennis McNally was talking about how He had, at one point, suggested, you know, why not just be a five-piece? You know, why not just have one keyboardist? Essentially, the way that they Mm. did it in the 70s, like where, you know, Keith was only playing piano. I I mean, did Keith play organ at all? I don't think he did. I think...
3: Yeah, very, very rarely, I think. Basically,
2: just playing piano, maybe some electric piano, um, but, Mm. like, have a Keith-like lineup but with a keyboardist that was maybe more self-assured. You know, cuz all the stories you hear about Keith is that he was a little bit of an insecure person, you know, wasn't as willing to maybe assert himself as much in the band. Whereas with Bruce, I mean there was none of that, you know. Like <laughs> he was he was yeah. very confident in his ability. And was very comfortable playing with these guys and and, and obviously Jerry respected him and, and and in this show, you know even though it is only the second um, show with Bruce, you know with him as a, as a member of the band, I mean, I think he had played with them before this, like as a guest star yeah. here and there. Um,
3: there were some guest appearances, but yeah. I think there's
2: some beautiful moments in this show where you can hear Jerry and Bruce playing off each other in a way that i I don't really remember. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, Jerry and Brent had some great moments where they would, you know, interact on stage, but just, like, were Jerry and Bruce are, like, trading licks here and there? Yeah. In ways I I don't recall ever happening with other Grateful Dead keyboardists, uh, you know, quite as prominently. (laughs) Well. And it's...
3: Well, the story even goes with Keith that part of why they fired him is that he would just duplicate what Jerry was doing. Right. <laughs> and so, and it would irritate the shit out of Jerry. So having somebody that he can kind of do a little, these little duels with, that's definitely one of his favorite things about Brent. That's what all those gifts are of Brent and Jerry giving each other the the love story. Right. <laughs> it's all from like guitar organ duels. And yeah, you totally hear it with Bruce. You got, there's that chemistry, uh, you, I, I even went looking for a good like jerry bruce gift, which unfortunately doesn't <laughs> exist there's fewer i think professionally recorded shows with bruce hornsby on stage but you know jerry was giving him some uh some some smiles some beardy smiles um, sure
2: Obviously, Madison Square Garden is a very special venue for the Grateful Dead, and for jam bands in general. Um, and this show came in the midst of a long fall run. I think it was six shows, wasn't it?
3: Yeah. And they seemed to like this is the era of the dead where they would always do a long fall run at Madison Square Garden. Uh, they ended up playing 52 shows total at the venue uh, between 79 and 94. Uh, And some of these runs, like they did a couple of nine night runs in 1988 and 1991. So the six show run was even like a little bit shorter than some of its surroundings. So they were definitely setting up a residency at Madison Square Garden. And I'm sure these were destination shows for a lot of deadheads, particularly on the East Coast.
2: And this fall tour, I mean, they, they were playing essentially, you know, stands, at like I think they played 11 shows at three different venues. Yeah. So, I mean, they weren't traveling far, and they just stayed on the East Coast, I think.
3: Yeah, Cleveland was the farthest west they got on this tour. And they played, yeah, three shows in Cleveland, three shows, I'm sorry, two shows in Cleveland, three shows at the Spectrum in Philly, and then these six shows at Madison Square Garden, and then they went to Europe for a month. One of those sort of forgotten Europe tours we talked about a couple episodes ago uh, was that they played a month uh, in Europe in 1990. So yeah, very, very strange. And you know, it's already got this sort of new keyboard thing happening. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it must've been a weird time to be a deadhead <laughs> to have this sudden abrupt transition into a new lineup.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like a big weird thing from this tour and you know, we, we've alluded to it already, but like they were really still performing under the shadow of like the loss of brent and it was something that it didn't seem like they were willing to address directly um but uh, you can hear how they're trying to replicate the sound of like that uh, i think definitely of like the of the late 80s dead specifically you know what they sounded like and i think you can hear that when you listen like to without a net you know which came out the month Of these shows, Mm -hmm. and without a net, to me like that record, it really is. I think like if I were to say to someone, you know, this is what '80s Dead sounds like, like that would be the record I would, I would give to them first. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's such a quintessentially '80s sounding Dead record, and it's essentially like an epitaph for for Brent. You know, like what he brought to the band, and I really love that record personally. Um, I mean. Is it as good as europe seventy two No, I don't think so, but I think it's the best representation of like what the dead sounded like at that time um, yeah, and it's interesting to hear some of the overlaps that exist with that record and and dicks picks nine um and and hearing like uh like for instance Cassidy, uh which is right. I think one of the highlights of without In that, and on that record, it's basically a a duet between Bob. And Brent, and uh, Dix picks nine. Uh, there must be Vince singing that, I guess.
3: It is, I think. Yeah, that's definitely not. I don't think Hornsby gets that high. No. Uh, yeah, that's a, that that's that's an example of those Vince high vocals. Like that, that one in the spot <laughs> in the band. Yeah. No, it, it's a, I remember very distinctly checking out "Without a Net" from my uh, local library as a high school. Uh, high schooler just starting to get into the dead. And I think I was a little perplexed by it because <laughs> like this show, it is like a lot. Like it's, you say it's like the most representative of the eighties dead. And now knowing a little bit more about the eighties dead, it really feels like the culmination of eighties dead in a lot of ways. Like it's a lot of things that they were sort of building up to as far as like experimenting with MIDI. There's a lot of that all over without a net and all over this show uh, there's a lot of uh, Brent's. I mean, like, we going back to Dick's Picks 5, when Brent was just starting out, you know, he was a very sort of subtle part of the, the band's sound, and uh, that obviously only grew over the course of the 80s to the point where, you know, he's like the lead vocalist on some songs that even predate his time with the band. Like, I Know You writer. It might as well be a Brent like lead vocal <laughs> by the time you get to Without a Net. Uh, and it has you know the long uh, Eyes of the World with uh, Branford Marsalis. So that was a little perplexing to me when I was just starting to get into The Dead. But yeah, it does sound really good now. I went back and listened to it for this and it's like, uh, yeah, it's like uh, you, you can hear all the things that the 80s Dead were working on sort of come to fruition in Without a Net. And I can totally see why you know, despite losing a key part of that sound, they wanted to just like stay on that trajectory and sort of solder, even if it meant soldering two very different keyboardists together in this strange arrangement uh, and just keep that momentum going because you can hear it in some of the, the songs that do overlap between Without Net and this show. The arrangement is very similar, even though the lineup has changed.
2: Yeah, it just speaks to how you know, the Brent era dead was the dead for a generation of, of fans and how mm-hmm. the Grateful Dead, either because they didn't have the imagination to reinvent it or because they were such a big business at that point, they didn't have the motivation to go in a different direction. Um, You know, that sort of maximalist sound of without a net is you feel like they're trying to replicate that in a way with this record, which, you know, in a way you feel like, you know, maybe this tour in a sense was like, it was almost like a tour in support of without a net, you know, like that was the record that people bought that month going into the show. uh, Or it would have been, you know, the record freshest in people's minds, maybe uh, going into this. And what, you know, that's the kind of thing that they would have expected um going into a show like this, you know, for better or worse. <laughs> and, and and that's what they're trying to uh recreate.
3: I think it also has just about that sound. I think it has to do with uh playing bigger and bigger venues as the 80s went on too, because we're like fully into the touch of gray, like the Grateful Dead as a cultural phenomenon era. And I think playing big venues, not necessarily like Madison Square Garden, but certainly playing the kinds of stadiums that they were playing in the summers at this stage they just like responded to that by becoming louder and bigger in every way and i think that's some of my issues with the grateful dead show we're about to cover uh but also like you know i think makes logical sense for a touring band that is finding themselves playing for 60 70 80, people on some nights
2: right yeah this this is definitely like full-on arena rock era grateful dead yeah it's very blustery, very over the top. Although, again, as we get into the show, also very weird. Yeah. You know, and I, I used that word earlier, but um, the, they're definitely taking some risks playing in front of, like, a huge audience at Madison Square Garden yeah. with this show. Yeah, true. Um, you can be
3: blustery that, and weird uh, at the same time, which doesn't seem like it would yeah. make sense, but uh, the Grateful Dead figured out a way to do it.
1: If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nemo at the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you
4: so much! We'll be seeing you!
2: So without an ad, it's definitely part of you know setting the scene for the show. But of course, we also like to set the scene by looking at what else was happening in culture at the time. And uh, the number one song in America at the time of this show... Release Me by Wilson Phillips, <laughs> and uh, I actually had to look this song up because you know I know Wilson Phillips from growing up in this era. I know Hold On. I guess that would be the song the I know by one. Wilson yeah. Phillips. I didn't remember. I didn't remember Release Me. I had to like look that song up, and even when I listened to it, it didn't seem immediately familiar. I don't. I don't know how well you know that song.
3: Yeah, I recognized it when I queued it up, but I wouldn't have been able to bring it to mind <laughs> before that. Uh, it kind of sounds exactly like "Hold on," just with different words. Uh, and it was like the follow-up, I believe, <laughs> right? It was uh, single number two on the juggernaut of an album. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but maybe. they all just
2: I feel like there were a cu- -- I feel like there were a couple other hits on that record, but I can only yeah. remember "Hold on," maybe because it was, it was in bridesmaids But um, there is a Grateful Dead connection. Right. To Wilson Phillips, um, which is that Chyna Phillips, uh, the blonde in that band, uh, is the daughter of John Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas, who wrote Me and My Uncle. That's right. A Grateful Dead Standard. So a pretty direct, you know, there's no six degrees of Kevin Bacon there. There's a pretty direct link. Between the Grateful Dead yeah. and Wilson Phillips, uh, and I love that you know there's always a Grateful Dead connection to everything, so it, it's good to have that. Um, other big songs of that uh, of this time, September of 1990, "Blaze of Gore, Glory" by John uh, John Bon Jovi uh, <laughs> from Young Guns too. From Young Guns too, "Love and Affection" by Nelson. Uh, yeah, another sort of like you know hair metal countryish sounding hybrid. I feel like. Blaze of Glory and Love and Affection feel kind of similar to me. It's like acoustic hair metal type stuff. Yeah. Uh, kind
3: of like Tesla, Signs type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Weird also also weird how many like second generation musicians there are. That's true. <laughs> like in the in the charts at this point, like you have got Ricky Nelson's kids and Wilson Phillips is of course, not just John and Michelle Phillips' daughter, but Brian Wilson's daughters too. So it's like the uh yeah, the 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 follow up to the uh, all the boomers all the boomers kids having their
2: moment on the on the charts. Pretty terrible time for for pop music, I would say. I mean, you know, yeah, the, the, in general, there's always that. You know, it's it, it was 1990, but like the 90s hadn't started yet. You know, like mm-hmm. like we were still about a. I mean, I think Nevermind by Nirvana came out in September of 1991, so like we're a full year away yeah. from that. Um, One year away, and uh, so yeah, pretty terrible uh, on the pop charts Yeah, I mean,
3: like for me, like being a couple years younger than you, these were very formative music years for me. But oh, well, me I too. Am totally, in I'm totally in the age range where I was like given a cassette tape of Nevermind, and it was like changed my entire musical taste for the rest of my life. Like it sounds like the hoariest of rock critic cliches, but it is actually true. Um, And I remember all these songs as, like, the pre-Nevermind era. Like, this is the when I was, like, aware of music, but not yet sort of, you know, quote-unquote turned on to real music, man. Like, this is all the stuff that was on the radio, right? And oh, yeah. The number one albums at this time, you, you noted in here, are MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt em, which is number one for 18 weeks. Incredible. And followed up by Vanilla Ices to the Extreme for 16 weeks. Yes. So that's more than half of the year was uh mc hammer and vanilla ice and i owned both those albums those might have been other than like weird al records the first cassettes i ever bought with my own money uh so that's i was totally in the uh mainstream zeitgeist at this point definitely not listening to the grateful dead but uh, no yeah ice ice baby that was that was the jam
2: i remember my neighbor uh who was a guy that like he was he was a teen he was like maybe four four or five years older than me. And he was into hip hop. And I remember him knocking on my door with a cassette tape and being like, this song is going to be huge. And it was Ice Ice Baby. And that's how I first heard Ice <laughs> Ice Baby. So like, you know, we talked about tapes with the Grateful Dead, people passing tapes around. My, na- yeah. my neighbor was passing me vanilla ice tapes in 90, dr- dropping the jams <laughs> on me. Uh, that's how cool I was back then uh the number one film in september of 90 at the time of the show was postcards from the edge the adaptation of the carrie fisher memoir yeah with meryl streep and shirley MacLaine. i've never seen it
3: yeah i distinctly remember the trailer where i think meryl streep is hanging off the side of a building right uh but it's like shot like down on her like like looking down on her and she like lifts up her hands like as a joke, like she's not actually on a building. They're actually just shooting it from above sort of thing. I have no idea what the movie's right. about. I imagine it's just about Carrie Fisher doing a lot of blow in uh right. Hollywood <laughs> and uh
2: right. semi
3: fictionalized, supposedly. But uh
2: yeah. That'd... Yeah, I don't know if it's a memoir, it might be a novel. I'm not sure. I'm not up on my... I'm not a Postcards from the edgehead.
4: I think it's like a thinly veiled uh, memoir. Like... uh, Right. Like, this is fictional. Wink, wink. Yeah.
2: Right. And I think, like, Shirley MacLaine is, like, Debbie Reynolds, like her mom. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Like a a double for her. Um, Goodfellas came out during this run.
3: Yeah. And I noticed today we're recording this on May 11th, which is uh, Goodfellas Day, right?
2: Yeah. Well, it's the... Yeah. In the film, May 11th, 1980... Is the day when Henry Hill is running around town, setting up like a cocaine deal, and he's being chased by helicopters. Yeah. And uh, there's like, Cue. there's like amazing Cue up, songs. Uh, jump into the fire.
3: Jump yeah. into the fire.
2: You have like <laughs> some there <you,
3: laughs>
2: exactly <laughs> yeah. killer baseline. You have like some awesome Rolling Stones songs playing. Uh, you have like well, memo from Turner from performance playing and Monkey Man from Let It Bleed, uh, Ooh, yeah, and uh, George Harrison's What Is Life? Basically, like th- that sequence, I feel like defined my music taste. Like you talk about Nevermind <laughs> changing your music taste, yeah. and, and it did that for me too. But like Goodfellas was like a huge influence on like the classic rock that I got into at that time, and I feel like yeah. I feel like Sc- Scorsese had such a big influence on me becoming a Rolling Stones fan because there was Goodfellas and there's also Mean Streets. There's the scene Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the movie where Johnny Boy's walking into the bar and Jumpin' Jack Flash is playing in the background. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but one of the coolest sequences of all time. That'll be for our 36 Scorsese's from the Vault podcast.
3: Uh, <laughs> Just Scorsese uh, needle drops. Right. Yeah. Uh,
2: the number one show in America at the time of the show was Cheers. Not a big surprise.
3: Yeah. The All in the Family of uh, the 80s and 90s, right?
2: Yep. And then it was 60 Minutes, which is still on the air, incredibly. Yeah. Roseanne, A Different World, and The Cosby Show.
3: <laughs> yeah so many people canceled in that list of uh that's true famous <laughs> popular tv shows uh yeah i guess cheers has has gotten off okay yeah i can't th- can't think of anybody who has been uh totally
2: i don't think so wiped
3: from polite society from the cheers cast like but, uh, uh you know yeah.
2: like uh yeah i'm trying to think who played norm what's that guy george went has george went been cancelled yeah. i th- i think george went is still no. okay
3: I, I I think uh, Ratzenberger, Cliff. I think he is like a right winger dude. Is he? But he's in all the Pixar movies, so it it all balances out, I guess. Oh. Yeah, I think he is. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to like slander Cliff if that's not true. So, I will just say uh, rumors have it, and then you know Kelsey Grammer seems like not the nicest dude in the world. He but, he's definitely yeah. a right
2: winger. I know that Kelsey <laughs> Kelsey Grammer. Uh, yeah, Tossed out toss. Dally, toss Toss salad and scrambled eggs, Frazier. <laughs> um, that would have been. I wonder, did, did the Dead and Frazier ever overlap? I think Frazier started at the end of the Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead should have jammed out on toss toss the salad and scrambled well, eggs. Yes. That would have been good
3: to call back to a few episodes ago i think fraser is the fish to uh the grateful dead's cheers
2: <laughs> it's true it's true yeah I, that. yeah I, I could see fish doing toss out and scrambled eggs I don't, <laughs> probably not the grateful dead health crisis we're facing right now has threatened the
1: livelihood and mental health of countless musicians. Backline is the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub, and their work is more vital than
2: ever. Launched in 2019, Backline aims to give artists, crew, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources.
1: Backline is currently hosting virtual support groups, as well as yoga, meditation, meditation, and breathwork sessions. Osiris is proud to partner with Backline. To donate, learn more, or to get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. Again, that's backline.care. All
2: right, well, let's get into this show. So, I have a bone to pick with the first song on on disc one because okay, we have Hell in a Bucket uh, kicking off this show. Is this the third Hell in a Bucket that we've had? Were they on both? We've had a lot. It's definitely yeah. the second. I know it was on Dick's Pick Six. It probably wasn't on five. I don't think Hell in a Bucket goes back that far. I don't know we'll, someone can can correct us on that. I'm just wondering, you know, okay, this is our third show, you know, post uh, I mean I guess we had a seventy nine show, eighty three, this is this is ninety. Can we get like a feel like a stranger in here? I, I'm really jonesing for a feel like a stranger. Like like that song doesn't show up until Dick's picks, I think, twenty seven.
1: Um and <laughs> yeah. I feel like very late and
2: that's just the song that You know, if we're in the 80s and 90s, like, I want to hear that song kick off the show. And I'm just always disappointed to hear Hell in a Bucket, which is okay. I don't hate that song, but, like, I don't know. It's very pedestrian.
3: The thing with Feel Like a Stranger is, like, I feel like this is too late for Feel Like a Stranger to really quite hit, because... I don't know about you, but I wouldn't describe the 90s as being Silky Nights, necessarily. The 90s uh, do not... (laughs) Have a silky texture to me. I don't even know what the texture of the '90s dead is, but silky is not. Up well, I there. know
2: that they got silky on like the nine twenty show. They kick it off with "Feel Like sure. a Stranger," and I don't, I don't think it's on road trips. Um, but there was a "Feel Like a Stranger" floating out there on this run, and they still went with the show with "Hell in a Bucket." Like you know, Dick just liked "Hell in a Bucket." Yeah. I guess. You know, which is okay. I don't know. I, I this is not a song I need to hear a right. whole lot. And if though.
3: they're gonna play it, they gotta like keep those uh, late '80s sound effects in there, right? Like we've we've listened <laughs> to that '88 version. I'm I'm blanking on the date, but there's several versions of Hell in a Bucket where they play the sound effects from the record. So you know, you get like a little like whip snap and lions roar and some motorcycle noises and all that stuff. And I mean, if you're gonna get you know full on cheesy rocker, Bobby you might as well just double down <laughs> and get some sound effects in there, too.
1: I was drinking last night with a biker And I showed him a picture of you And said, get to door you like her Seemed like the least I could do
4: When he's charging his chopper Up and down your carpet at home You will think me by contrast, won't pop.
3: uh this one definitely has cheesy rocker uh, bobby doing the uh outro up in the falsetto range uh which
2: is always uh fun to hear oh man
4: <laughs> ride, ride. <laughs> Cause I'm enjoying the ride.
2: yeah like he yeah this is this is definitely foreshadowing <laughs> for what we're gonna hear yeah. later in this show Bob is rocking the falsetto in this show, man. And, uh, you know, God love him. He's really, I think, compensating for Jerry. There's not a lot of Jerry in this Mm. show in terms of, like, lead vocals. And when he does sing, we'll get into this later on. I mean, his vocals sound a little rough on this show. There's there's instances in this show, like, where Jerry starts singing and it's, like, hard to recognize his voice right away um like there's one song in particular where there was like a good like 10-15 seconds yeah, where i was that like it's standing on the moon singing? it's like jarring this song. it sounds
3: like it's not even like a frog in his yeah. throat it's like yeah <laughs> he is just really singing uh, in a completely different register and i don't know what the reasons could be for that
2: yeah uh, it's like did, did it's like did keith richards do like a <laughs> guest spot on this show i, I was like t- totally thrown off on that um And also, Bob forgets the lyrics.
4: Yeah. Here, too.
3: Crowd cheers, which is fun.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's always a bonus. I mean, that's what deadheads are. I mean, we always like to hear something different uh, Mm -hmm. in a performance, even if it's a fuck-up. So, I mean, it ends up being an endearing thing, I guess, about this performance that, that Bobby doesn't remember the lyrics.
3: Right. Flubs it. Not right out of the gate like the uh, Cold Rain and Snow from a few volumes ago, but it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty early. This must be pre teleprompter dead, though I think the teleprompters were soon to arrive.
2: So the second track is another song that we've heard a lot so far yeah. on our Dix Picks run, which is Cold Rain and Snow. Um, do we know if it rained? at this show <laughs> well we got it looks like rain too uh <laughs> That's I
3: think, true yeah sup- september 1990 in new york september in new york seems like it could be rainy though i think i've been ever since i you know put that theory out there i think i've been wrong <laughs> there have been a couple uh shakedown streams on friday nights where people have pointed out to me that they're playing cold rain and snow and it's like beautiful and sunny outside. So (laughs) I guess maybe my grateful dead as meteorologist theory was a little off base, but let's, let's say for uh, the sake of my theory and my ego that this was a rainy night in New York city. Yeah. We we're getting a lot of these and this one is, you know, it's fine. It's like, you know, it's, it's a good, like sort of high energy opener. This is again where Bruce and, bruce bob and jerry are alternating songs so they like kind of each get a crack at an opener here and you know it sounds pretty good i feel like phil is very present right off the bat in this show and one of the complaints i have about some of the 80s shows we've done or the other ones we've listened to for research is that phil kind of seemed like he took a back seat in a lot of the 80s and wasn't quite as like foregrounded as he was say in you know the 74 show we did recently uh but yeah this you know phil you can really hear him coming out of the gate nice and loud uh which adds to this uh sort of maximalist 90s grateful dead sound because here's yet another person who is kind of going full steam ahead at all times but uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm happy to have a loud phil back in the in the mix
2: I'll say too that I feel like Vince's keyboards sound pretty good on this song. He has like a 60s keyboard thing going throughout this track, you know, whether by his choice or if if Bray Love was being kind to him. Like it it, it sounds like it's trying to replicate like a more of like a garagey mid 60s, late 60s Grateful Dead kind of keyboard sound. And then you have Bruce, who um, is. You know, laying back being pretty tasteful mm-hmm. on this song, but like still making his presence felt.
3: Well what you said earlier about how he had the ability to cut through the mix. I mean that's that's the most striking thing about this set to me, is there's just like so much happening every second of these songs. And yet, like every so often you get this like really beautiful Bruce piano line sort of like snaking its way out and taking center stage for a few seconds. And it's like a really nice dynamic to have him there and i don't know if i mean he said that there were times where yeah he would just sit there and like there were times where he wouldn't play anything at all he would just kind of let the song go until he found his spot to to fill in uh but yeah you're right that this is like this is the first song where you can kind of hear like you know a very talented piano player uh jumping out of the mix which is not something we've heard with the grateful dead for you know basically a decade
2: yeah, and yeah, you know, I've at times described Bruce as like an aggressive piano player in the dead, which is like not an accurate way to describe him because, and I think this song is a good example of like him not being aggressive. What he is is like he's a rigorous player, he's a muscular player. Like when he makes his presence felt, he you know you, you hear him, you feel him in the mix, but he can also be a guy who, yeah, he knows his place and he and he doesn't want to add to the noise <laughs> that's going on in stage. And, like, later in this set, especially, there's a lot of examples of, like, just so much shit happening on stage at once where, yeah, like, if he was an aggressive player, it would even be more of, like, a clusterfuck on stage. Right. So it, it, it's nice to know... It, it, it's nice to have him on stage and, you know, having a guy up there that... Um, you know, just has that sort of awareness of, of when to come in and, and, and when to lay back. Um, the next song, Speaking I can't of really of talk about. Speaking of self-awareness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the next song I can't really talk about because um, I, I bathroom break <laughs> this song immediately. Little Red Rooster. I'm like, I can't do it. I can't yeah. do Little Red Rooster. So I bathroom break this immediately. And you were telling me that there are some good moments in this performance. <laughs>
3: Did I did I say that really? Um, <laughs> maybe mm, you're, right. trying kill you try to... <laughs> you're trying to guilt me. You're trying to guilt me.
2: Well, what I said to you was like, you know, I said I think this is an automatic bathroom break for me. And you're like, well, I think Bruce plays pretty well, yeah, on some parts of it. And then I was like, you know, maybe instead of a bathroom break, this is like that moment in the show, like where, and I don't know if you've ever pulled this trick, but like if you go to a show with somebody, and you're and you volunteer to get the first beer early on. Because you know that the other guy will have to get a beer at a different point in the show that will probably be more interesting later on. Right. So it's like I think I'm gonna, we gonna probably pull this
3: trick on each other at shows, even.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. It's like this show, this song is lame. So I'm gonna get the. So maybe it should be like a beer break. I, I'm. A, yeah. It's like I'm. I'm leaving here to get you a beer because I feel like there's probably gonna be something better later on. Which, by the way. I might be wrong about that in this show, but, uh, (laughs) Well, it's not going to get any worse,
3: you know that, so,
4: (laughs) it's a safe bet. Yeah, I mean, it's
3: like, there's, I should count up how many songs we have the notes, uh, you know, it's okay, but there's a really nice Bruce solo, (laughs) because I feel like that's like the silver lining for a lot of songs, where it's like, uh, yeah, I'm not really feeling it, but, hey, around minute eight or so, Bruce plays a really nice, like, 30-second solo, which is... I think what I was talking about with this, but yeah, I mean it is—it's—it's it's Little Red Rooster. It's over ten minutes of Little Red Rooster, so <laughs> you could go to the bathroom and get a beer and get some nachos and maybe visit with some uh, friends out in the concourse and then make your way back in, and uh, you right. would miss a note, I think. Uh, but it's—it is full on Bobby Blues. Like there's there's no doubt about it. So yeah, yeah. What are you gonna do?
2: Yeah, it's like in in the third slot as always. It's like yeah. I, well, and it's
3: uh, this is something we like haven't brought up, but I think I I've, I've seen Bruce talk about this in other interviews and he talked about it with me even when I talked to him about the Dead, which one of the reasons why he I think I mean the main reason it sounds like he didn't stay with the Dead, well there's two main reasons. One is that he had his own thing going and he couldn't just totally rearrange his professional life around the Grateful Dead. Uh the second thing is that jerry was getting you know less and less healthy whether due to drugs or other things uh and i think bruce just got really frustrated with the fact that jerry wasn't always checked into shows uh but another thing and this is the thing i talked about with them is that he felt like they were so reliant upon their set list formula uh in the 90s that there always had to be a bobby blue song third in the set and he was like always trying to get them to shake it up like, he talked to me about, I think he kept trying to get them to open a show with China Ryder, and they were like, sure, sure, great idea, and then they never would. Or, it's like, I think in one interview I saw, he was like, let's open up a drum space some night. Like, let's just totally screw with uh. everybody. <laughs> and, and which, I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea, but it certainly would have been, like, pretty fun experiment to see yeah. and hear. Uh, so, you know, this you know very predictable bobby blues in the third slot is that's what it makes me think of is like at this point bruce is probably like hey whatever i'll roll with whatever and then even bruce by like 92 i think <laughs> is like are we really doing a bobby blues song third <laughs> third in the <this> show again <laughs> like jesus so, christ yeah, yeah exactly he's sort of the uh the audience protagonist in some ways where oh man uh, well he was even a fan yeah he was he loved the dead he was a fan of them in their earlier days and was living the dream by playing with them and i think you know really wanted them to be the best they could be and sort of sadly you know didn't get that and you know put some distance between him and the dead uh yeah he, he he saw the writing on the wall better than anybody probably
2: so the next song i feel like i probably like more than you actually like Stagger Lee, and I like more than I expected to get into get yeah. into this song because, you know, they're, they're doing Stagger Lee. And, and this is a song that appeared originally on Shakedown Street, and it's credited as a Garcia Hunter song. Although, of course, Stagger Lee is like a much, much covered folk standard. Uh, I mean, basically, everyone has done this song from like, you know, like Bob Dylan to... Uh, To Woody Guthrie to Mississippi John Hurt like Nick Cave did a version of this I mean there's just dozens upon dozens of different versions of this song and I remember seeing it on the set list here and being like you know kind of rolling my eyes like Little Red Rooster and Lee, like back to back (laughs) like like 20 minutes straight of blues Um, but I actually enjoyed this version and I'll say that like this begins the part of this record that I like the most like there's about a I guess a five song stretch coming up here that is the most pleasurable for me and that I most enjoyed revisiting as I was digging into this record and yeah. kind of like what you were saying before, like a lot of it has to do with Bruce like I like Bruce's <laughs> playing uh on this song um you know especially in the back half of uh, of the performance where he starts to make his presence felt more um. I don't know. Maybe I just had low expectations going into it too, and that helped me enjoy it more. But uh, yeah, I I I liked staggerly.
3: Yeah, well, you also had a fresh beer and an empty bladder, so you were ready, right? <laughs> ready to well, go for staggerly.
2: Well, you and I were joking about this because uh, I was texting you when I was really digging into this record, and it was like on a beautiful spring morning, in, uh, like on Sat, like on the weekend. And and you were like, you know, we should note the context of, of this listen. Because I was like, right. oh, man, Steger Lee is like really fucking good. But I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, beautiful morning, you know. It's like I think the weather probably had a lot. If, if I was listening to this like in January uh, when it was, you know, 10 degrees outside, I don't know if I would have liked it as much right. <laughs> as I ended up liking it on on these listens.
3: Yeah. You almost have to include a disclaimer when you're listening to the dead in May. I think May is like the most (laughs) grateful dead month somehow. Like, Oh yeah. It's just like the perfect weather for sitting out back and grilling or having some beers or sitting at a fire pit and listening to the dead. And that's, I think part of the power of Harper College too, is that it is like a May show, like perfectly in the sweet spot of dead listening time. But yeah, I get it. Like I don't, quite <laughs> feel like this show matches with that vibe just because of all the 90s dead stuff we've been talking about but yeah I, you know honestly you you kind of talked me into like giving staggerly more of a chance on subsequent listens and i do like it i like it also because it's a novelty to me like that's a that's a dead song i haven't really heard too many versions of so it's it is kind of a fun jerry song it, it is like a weird jaunty reading of the staggerly folk song uh, which has always struck me as like a pretty dark murder ballady sort of song. And I think I might've heard the Nick K version first, which is like the dead's version, pretty much a complete rewrite of the original folk song. It's like taking the story, but uh, rewriting it to uh, the band's own strengths. And the Nick K version is just like this really profane, nasty, aggressive song. <laughs> and that's right. sort of what I think I expect from a song called staggerly. Um, but the, you know the the dead version is kind of like jolly <laughs> which right. is funny when you read the lyrics and it's this like you know murder and revenge story uh but yeah jerry you know it, it, this is a point this is a one of the songs on the night where jerry he sounds old he sounds like 90s jerry but he sounds like he's also having a, a pretty good time singing it so right uh i'll i'll, I'll give it to him and It also just sort of illustrates the difference between like a bobby blues song and a jerry blues song where what is a city without its music
4: the legacy of the new york philharmonic is incredible
3: nearly two centuries of history that's a lot of music and a lot of stories
2: i was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking i can't quite believe
4: this is happening
3: Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the N.Y. Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Little Red Rooster can really feel like a chore <laughs> and really sort of <laughs> blues hammery, as we've used before. Uh, and, but the Jerry ones have sort of a, an effervescence to them, or more of like a sort of folky charm, I guess. Right. Uh, that you just don't get from uh, from Bob's covers.
2: Well, I think we'll find, too, that as the show goes on, I feel like Jerry's voice starts to deteriorate by the second set. Uh, and it still sounds good in the first set. So, um, yeah, that has a lot to do with it. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, in a way, the arrangement doesn't really suit the song, like, in terms of the lyrical content. But... It makes it more enjoyable, like, uh, you know, Little Red Rooster is this dirty, you know, cookie-cutter blues thing, and Steger Lee, it just has, um, it's a little bit more upbeat, which, which I think makes it easier to take, especially if you're going to yeah. push it to the 10-minute mark. Um, the next song, Queen Jane, approximately, one of two Dylan covers in this show. And yeah, the first
3: I, time we've gotten to a Dylan... Dead cover in the Dick Spick series, I believe, That's right?
2: That's true. That's true. I mean, that really became a hallmark, I feel like, of, like, I guess, like, the post-1987 Grateful Dead, like, that tour that Dylan and the Dead did in 87, mm-hmm. um, and you know, after that, I feel like Dylan covers were a big part of of uh, Grateful Dead shows. I mean, Dylan covers, I feel like, were always a big part of, like, Jerry Garcia band shows, and I, and I feel like... Right jerry on his own generally does better dylan covers like i you know if i think of like the best dylan covers like tangled up in blue for instance like what he what that that the jerry garcia band version of that i think is really great and it takes a lot Mm -hmm. to laugh and takes a train to cry you know he did with Mm -hmm. with the uh jerry garcia band um and of course bob sings a lot of dylan covers with the dead It's always interesting to me to think about Bob Weir's relationship to Bob Dylan because, you know, Bob Weir, of course, is younger than everybody. He was a teenager when those records dropped, uh, those mid-60s Dylan records dropped. And I just wonder if maybe they hit him differently than they did the rest of the the guys in the band. Because, Hmm. you know, to be a teenager, like when Highway 61 came out or Blonde on Blonde, I just wonder... I just feel like that would have been more of like a mind-bending thing. Although Bob Weir certainly was not a typical teenager, you know, he had seen a lot of things by then, so maybe it wasn't quite the same. But you know, when I heard this version, it made me think of the Dylan and the Dead version. I don't know. Have you yeah. listened much to that record?
3: Yeah, yeah, off and on. More as like out of uh, <laughs> curiosity than any sort of uh, love for it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess. I mean, I, I mean, I love yeah. Bob Dylan is my favorite artist uh, of all time. So I, I, am interested in anything he does, and of course, I love The Grateful Dead. So I ended up, I, I ended up loving that record, even though it, it's, it's kind of a disaster <laughs> at times,
4: yeah. and,
2: and I will say that I feel like. If you're going to compare that version of Queen Jane Approximately from Dill the Dead to this one, I, I, I think I prefer this one. Like, I, I don't think Bob Dylan sounds all that great singing Queen Jane Approximately on the Dylan and the Dead record. It's like, I would never, I, I usually wouldn't say this, but I think we're, like, in that strict one-to-one comparison, I think he gets the edge yeah, uh, for, uh, for the Dick's Picks 9 version. I don't know how you feel yeah. about that.
3: Well I think it, it's always interesting when Bob does Dylan songs because he's got such like a masculine energy that Dylan does not have and it brings sort of a different element to play I feel like in a lot of the, the Dylan covers he does whereas Jerry's covers are a little bit more uh, I think they're closer to To Dylan's style though he is also a little more I think uh on like the feminine emotional side than Dylan would ever get so you kind of have these two extremes that are on the other side of what Dylan himself would perform these songs as and that's always sort of interesting to hear I don't really love any of the Dead's Dylan covers and maybe that's Grateful Dead blasphemy like I always find them pretty interesting and you know there's like they 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 serve their place in the dead show and they kind of just become like a nice warm like comfort food part of these later dead shows to me but none of them are really that like revelatory and none of them certainly make me want to hear the dead's version more than a dylan version uh maybe not from this particular era of dylan i guess 1990 is where we're deep into the never-ending tour by that point right is that like jimmy smith era uh dylan uh, where he's doing also pretty like hard rock versions. <laughs> of yeah, I mean, well, classics. I
2: mean, I mean, '90 was not a very good Bob Dylan year. I mean, I feel like even for the Neverending Tour, like '80 yeah. and '89 w- would have been better than '90. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I I tend to prefer like the Jerry Garcia band covers mm-hmm. of of Dylan songs more than Grateful Dead. Although my favorite uh, Grateful Dead. Stealin' Cover is it's all over now, baby blue, and that comes up later in the show, I, I, and that's a Jerry song. Um, although that particular version isn't my favorite version that they've done of that, but like I feel like at, in this era they would often end shows with that song, and I I think that's like a really cool show ender. Certainly mm-hmm. better than ending with Chuck Berry. Like they transitioned <laughs> from doing the Berry to like this sort of like dark, apocalyptic Bob Dylan song, which I think is kind of a cool way to end the show, but we'll, we'll talk about that later on in this episode. the next song this is gonna shock regular listeners of uh <laughs> this of this show i'm prepared to say that for me i think the mvp of this record is tennessee jed uh, And just wow. in terms of like my favorite song on here um i really like this version of tennessee jed um and I'm like as shocked as anybody because there are some like <laughs> weird choices in this song, especially with Vince. Yeah, and, 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 I'll, oh, yeah. and I'll let you I'll let you cover that. Um, <laughs> but I got to say that I really like um, what Bruce brings to this. I think his piano playing it gives it more of a country feel that yeah. I think adds a lot to it, and it's a song that. uh you know, we were, we were talking earlier about Jerry and Bruce, you know, dueling uh, at times, and I feel like this is a good example of that. I also want to say quick, you know, I forgot to mention this in Queen Jane approximately. It foreshadows, I think, what happens in this song because there's a really cool moment in at the five minute mark of Queen of Queen Jane approximately, like where Bruce plays a little piano lick, and then Jerry actually copies Bruce, and then Bruce picks up on it. And then Jerry copies them again. And they kind of go back and forth a little bit. It's like a really nice moment. You know, we talked about how Keith would just double Jerry. But this is Jerry actually kind of doing what Bruce is doing. And they're having a little conversation. That starts in Queen Jane approximately. And it picks up again in Tennessee Jed. And I really I, I'm really charmed by it, and it's like a ten minute version of this song, <laughs> like on paper. Yeah. I never think I never thought I would like it, but uh, uh, i'm I'm pretty i'm I'm pretty delighted by it. so like uh, yeah, for me, this is kind of the highlight of the whole record. Wow. The, the vince stuff is pretty weird <laughs> i
3: did not uh i did not expect that steve that is my 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 jaw has dropped at the uh, tennessee jed being your mvp i know not because i think it's a particularly bad version just because we're such well-documented jed haters well we're uh, not haters jed skeptics i would say we're growing i'm uh, I'm, I'm, that...
2: I'm growing during this series i'm evolving
4: <laughs> exactly but i think evolving as a person uh, I'm,
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm evolving as a jethead, uh but yeah the bruce <laughs> the, but definitely like a like a good bruce tennessee jet i think that's maybe my sweet spot with this song
3: yeah no i totally agree with you i, I love having the piano back in the mix on this song particularly because it gives it you you, you said like sort of the country rock feel i feel it feels very like roadhousey, right like this arrangement of it uh, which I don't think you got from Brent's probably usually playing organ on this song, I think. Uh, but the it is a significant block to me and I'm trying. I really, really, really tried not to let this dominate my listening as I went through this. But the, the Vince tone on this song is just crazy. It is like Brent scarlet begonia's marimba crazy (laughs) where it's like who could have listened to this tone and said this is a good idea and i like that we can't even agree on what it was trying to replicate yeah i am like is that like supposed to be like the synthesizer violin setting uh you wrote down it's supposed to be a harmonica uh that was my guess i mean somewhere between that
2: and i'm not even saying that i'm right i'm just like that's my guess. But <laughs> we're, I was I, we're just guessing. I was just trying to be like, oh, like like the motif of the song, it's sort of like a countryish um, uh, right. you know, song and like sort of have like a harmonica on it sound. Ah, uh, yeah, Makes
3: that's where sense. I thought like the fiddle would sort of fit in, but yeah, it's uh it's very it's a rough idea.
2: It's kinda of like a high yeah. squeaky sound. Um yeah. and
3: I like there's like before the song even starts. There's like a little like when they're kind of tuning up to it, they like flip that tone on, and he plays a little like diddle on it, and you hear this like sound from the crowd, which, I it's mostly a cheer, I think, but also maybe just sort of like a like a what the fuck <laughs> from a collective uh, from the collectively from the Madison Square Garden crowd. Uh, you know, the thing with the Dead and MIDI is that I really respect that they were going for that like it is like something that they didn't have to do and it's like kind of cool that a band that is 25 years old at the point of this show is like and so associated with like you know classic rock and folk rock and country and sort of rootsy sounds is like we're all in on this midi thing like not just even from the keyboards like we're gonna put drums through midi we're gonna put guitars through midi we're gonna put the bass through midi uh it's 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 adorable and it's like, it's, it's like (laughs) admirable that they were like, so into this new technology. But unfortunately I think the technology just wasn't quite there yet for what they wanted to do. And I, I'm sure that Bob Braylove is like a genius guy for that time. And I'm sure it took like, you know, computer programming skills to even come up with the synthesized violin tone (laughs) that they use on this Tennessee Jed. Uh, but it, just it it's the most dated thing like imaginable and I, I, you know i can appreciate this version of the song but it's it's never going to be my mvp just because of that like screeching that's going on over the entire runtime
2: yeah i mean i think with stuff like that you have to sort of look at it as well these weird uh you know choices these sonic choices this is like how they got psychedelic at this time by like using yeah Outdated technology or technology that was going to be soon outdated in like really weird ways, so like that's how I try to appreciate it like where uh it's because it does sound weird and and again I keep saying the word weird in connection to this show there's just some just bizarre choices that happen sonically in in this gig um mm-hmm. that uh, you know don't necessarily have like intentionality to them. Like they're not trying to sound bizarre. Like I Again, I feel like in Tennessee Jed, there was an idea of like trying to sort of create these synthetic country sounds, country music sounds that would have like added to the atmosphere of the song, but it ends up not sounding like that. It ends up sounding <laughs> like fake squeaks, that are being forcefully inserted into the mix, Um, and they they don't totally work. Um, But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I think I was just so charmed by Bruce that it was easy for me to block that (laughs) out in ways that I wasn't able to block out that kind of stuff later on in this show, uh, which we'll get to. Um, The next song, Cassidy. Um we we touched on this one a little bit. I mean, this was a highlight of Without a Net. And of course, um on that record it's a duet between Bob and Brent. And I like this version, but I mean, this is a song where I think you really feel the absence of Brent. Wouldn't you say? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I I'm I like Cassidy a lot, and I think it's one of these like weird it's the rare Grateful Dead song that, you know, it debuted in the seventies, it's on Ace, but it didn't really like fully bloom until the eighties. And I don't know if that was because of Brent or just because of the the sound of the band had changed and it ended up suiting uh, the uh the the, the the song as written. Uh but yeah, you listen to that without a net version and it's such a duet between Bob and Brent. I mean, they are like equally loud in the mix. Uh, so then jumping from that to a vince version is it's a little bit sad but i think it's still a pretty good version and i just like kind of like the drive the momentum that cassidy has i think it adds like a nice urgency to an era of the dead that was sometimes lacking in urgency so yeah this is our first cassidy i'm looking forward to more in the dicks picks but yeah uh, yeah it's, it's okay
2: yeah it's definitely i think one of the better bob songs and as you said it comes from ace The source of many Bob Weir classics. Um, but yeah, I agree. I I, I feel like um that song was a late bloomer in a way, you know, comes out in the early seventies, but really blossoms uh with the Brent era in the eighties. And I think just because of the emotion in Brent's voice, you know, which we've talked about in this show. Sometimes it seemed maybe a little uh you know, over the top, sometimes his vocal style, but I think it really suits that song, which is of course a, a tribute to uh, Neil cassidy uh and it's just nice to kind of hear that sort of expressiveness in a song like that, and to not have that It, it just feel it, it in a way, it's almost like a tribute. To Brent now, like when you hear it on this record. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. First disc wraps up with "Deal," and this is uh, for me. You know, I mean, "Deal" was always like I think a great set closer, um, right. and it never changes all that much, like from different versions that you hear. But I always enjoy hearing it. Like for me, you know, I said "Stagger Lee" was the beginning of the meat of the set for me, or my favorite part of of this album, and I feel like "Deal" is the capstone of the best part of the record for me. Um and yeah, I mean I, I just think it's a great set closer. I, I guess I don't have a ton to say about Deal other than that. I mean, I just but I I like this version and um I think it's a good end uh to the first disc.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's another place where Brent's ghost is kind of haunting the show, I think, because Deal was always such a showcase for Brent's organ. And one of the you know really disappointing parts of what they sort of forced vince into uh is that he's doing sort of this you know organ patch on his synthesizer instead of brent's very robust classic hammond b3 sound with like a dozen leslie speakers (laughs) arranged around the stage to create this like huge thick organ and instead you get kind of this like rinky dink like minor league baseball organ uh that's the only kind of bummer about it but you know it's this is a reliable set closer for the dead by this point and they're not going to mess it up too much. So yeah, it's
2: fine. So now we're going into disc two and the first two songs on disc two, I'm going to say like, this is, uh, (laughs) I guess other than the little red rooster, like it really bottoms out for me. Like we're going from like the (laughs) peak, I think, you know, like that back half of the first disc I think is like relatively strong. These next two songs, man, it's like, it's, it's really tough for me. It's like, yeah. You got Samson and Delilah and Iko Iko. And it it's sort of like just being in um I'm trying to think of like a good analogy here. It's like it's like being on a train that's about to go off a track and also like you're doing an aerobics class inside the train. Uh <laughs> and maybe there's like a bunch of jugglers in there and uh you know, and and sword swallowers and just a lot of things going on at once and everything sort of falling apart at the same time. It, 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 it's so up. There's so much energy, but I just find it to be sort of headache-inducing, these two songs. Um, and if I yeah. hadn't already taken, and I guess this is me getting screwed over by buying you a beer uh, <laughs> during... Little Red Rooster, because this, because this is this should be when you're buying, like, like when uh, well, I guess uh, you're gonna buy me a beer and you're gonna force me to listen to these songs while you go off, you're hanging <laughs> right. on the concourse uh, while these two songs are playing. I mean, do you like these? I mean, yeah. do you like these more than I do? I mean, because both of these songs I think are, are are rough for me,
3: yeah. I mean, both of these, I don't, I don't dislike either of these songs, but these two songs are like the perfect example. Of my primary block with 90s dead and it's not even vince tones or jerry's decline it's that two drummer two drummer dead is really at its nadir (laughs) and as the 90s go on and this is like a perfect example of like billy and mickey not really like keeping a beat so much as just hitting every drum in their set (laughs) at random and like the combination of the two of them just like constantly hitting things sort of resembles a drum beat that the rest of the song works on uh there's the old knock on two drummer dead that it sounds like sneakers and a dryer and i can't think of like (laughs) better examples of that like you know description than these two songs because they just kind of like they just rattle around <laughs> and like it it sets such a shaky foundation for all the like very loud maximal busyness on top of it that you 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 mentioned already headache inducing this this is a part of the show that pretty much literally gives me a headache <laughs> like it
2: is just too much for me and well like well, like, again, I mean, there's just some, like, weird set list choices in this show, like, where, okay, early in the show, you have Little Red Rooster going into Stegger Lee, so it's, like, 20 minutes of, like, bluesy, mid-tempo songs, and then you have, like, Samson and Iko Iko back-to-back, another 20 minutes of just, like, upbeat Kind of similar sounding songs, yeah. It's like
3: sort of tropical, need... sort of New Orleansy. Like, yeah, they 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 both have that like party vibe.
2: Yeah, it's like you know, Samson Delilah. I would say like it's not my favorite song, but like I understand that as a song. You come out of the set break, you're trying to get people back up. I understand playing that. Iko Eiko. I, I don't need. I don't need to hear Iko Eiko. I know this was like a song that they played a lot. Uh, in the late '80s, going into the '90s, I mean, like when this song started, like, what's the difference between this song and like "Man Smart, Woman Smarter"? Like, I feel like they sound very similar it, yeah, coming in. I mean, I, obviously, Echo, Echo Echo is like a cover right. song. Well, so is "Man uh, Man
3: Smart, Woman Smarter" is a Harry Belafonte song. So, yeah, they, they both have this like calypso. I don't know. I'm 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 probably not putting the right label on it, but it just like it feels very like Creole New Orleans, in a very sort of generic way, like just like party, party jazz rock. Uh,
2: I mean, like if like if the Meters are playing this, yeah, I'd be pretty excited. Exactly. But I don't. Uh, yeah, like yeah, 1990 Grateful Dead. I don't know. It just does not work. Right. And like, man, the <laughs> the. Is that Vince playing a synth solo at like 4.30 mark of uh, Iko Iko? It's just, it's like nails on a chalkboard, man. It's just <laughs> blaring. It's yeah. awful, man.
3: And then Jerry like chases it with, I think the first real obvious example of him using MIDI on this show. And there's going to be a lot more. But yeah, it is like them trying to out-tasteless each other <laughs> on how bad they can make their instrument sound. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a rough listen i think and i'm sure there's people yeah. that love it and I, this is very much the sort of like the grateful dead concert as party versus the grateful dead concert as art uh right the sort of the 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 scales tipping one way or another where you know if you're like if you've had several beers uh, and uh other substances and you're partying it up in new york city and yeah, they come out and do twenty minutes of this stuff, and I'm sure it's fun to dance to, and everybody's happy, and it's a, it's a good time. But it's not something that holds up particularly well on tape.
2: Well, and just to bring up some of the other shows from this run, I mean, the, you know, the nine twenty show. I mean, there's a China writer in that show, mm-hmm. in the second set, I think, or, I, or that might be the first set. I know there's a Dark Star, yeah, uh, that that goes on that you know for quite a while. It's like. I understand like uh, th- this show w- probably was fun if you were there but like if you're going to release a record like give us like the dark star show you know <laughs> give us like stuff that's like a little bit more exploratory I don't know this to me just is like not a great listening experience uh, Did, right? you know get getting that double shot This is the here. argument uh,
3: uh for doing compilations over full shows I think is that you can cut right. <laughs> Samson echo echo from this from this show yeah
2: uh so it's funny because I mean we, the next song looks like rain. You know, we've talked about looks like rain. I feel like we're both pro looks like rain, yeah. right? I mean, we both like that song. Yeah, absolutely. And and definitely it literally is like a oasis after like that double shot. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you you do feel like you've been through the desert. And now you're like, oh, like I I'm gonna get some rain. And I'm gonna have Bobby <laughs> screeching at me about the rain.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> like shouting at the sky about the rain. And this is where the falsetto comes back. Because it's like
4: rain Yeah.
3: Red, red As we've said it before, comes... he yeah. hates that rain. <laughs> he hates it more than anybody has ever hated rain.
2: Well, does he hate the rain or does he or is he like an ecstasy over the oh,
3: rain? Oh no, he's saying I can't stand the rain. And uh <laughs> rain rain go away he's he, he's got all sorts of anti-rain messaging uh, that true. he cycles through yeah i think it's definitely an anti-rain song yeah
2: yeah hates the rain well i was grateful for the rain <laughs> uh in this show i felt like i was parched right after that double shot and i appreciated uh you know it, it's so funny because like with with this air of the dead it is more languid and I feel like we're, you know, we'd be more apt to complain about the lack of energy. So it's sort of funny to be complaining about too much energy <laughs> or too much noise in the previous two songs. But like, I did appreciate the relatively chilled-out vibe of "Looks Like Rain" after the previous two songs. Right.
3: Well, I think all the things that go wrong with the '90s Dead sound and what it had become by this point. Uh, in Samson and Ico Ico actually somehow like coalesce and work on this version of Looks Like Rain which you know again this is another uh, like early 70s Bob song which is like a fairly subtle country rock folk rock song uh, in its earliest incarnations and probably shouldn't work with this throw everything out there 90s dead approach but I really like it like I like like what Vince is doing, he's adding sort of like some sparkly color to it, which I think actually works in this instance. Uh, I like what Jerry is doing, and I really like actually his use of MIDI on this song. It's like the the sort of infamous MIDI trumpet sound that Jerry leans on a lot in this era. Uh, but there's a really nice riff uh, over, if you sort of can tune out... Bob's histrionics over rain (laughs) and the outro to the song. There's a really sort of nice counter melody that Jerry plays and he sort of hints at it on the without a net version too, um, which I thought was interesting, but it's a little bit more developed in this version. And I really like it a lot. It's sort of over the last two minutes of the song, if you listen to it, because he plays it in like sort of standard Jerry tone and then he flips on the trumpet tone and it actually sounds great in the trumpet tone, too. So it's sort of the rare instance where all of these technological tricks they're using actually serve the song instead of distract from the song and... in in the same you know sort of upset of you liking jed more than anything else on this album i think i like the looks like rain from this volume more than any other performance uh on this on volume nine like this is this i i'm I'm gonna stick my neck out and say this is my mvp of the of the collection because i i just think this does what they were going for in 1990 and subsequent years uh, This does it better And is more successful Than anything else on this On this album All
4: my life I've rain And I've seen rain I can't stand it though no. I can't stand the rain All my life I've rain And I've seen rain Rain
2: like i I don't know if this if this shows our evolution during the course of our first season or if it just speaks to this show right that we're standing up for tennessee jet and looks like rain if somebody's (laughs) running like a
3: uh sports book on what we're gonna pick as our mvps from episode to episode the 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 long shots really cancel uh uh, cashed in on this one (laughs) i think
2: (laughs) yeah i think so well we have Next, we have a He's Gone, which uh, is a war horse. And, you know, this is I think this is another highlight of, of the record. Uh-huh. Um, and, I mean, I don't think it's the best version of, of He's Gone. Although, I, I do tend to have um, affection for, like, later versions of this song. Because I think this song and, like, Ro Jimmy, some of the more sort of, you know, dirgy, Grateful Dead ballads um i i think sometimes that they're enhanced by you know having like a ravaged jerry garcia voice and uh you know some of the more lethargic pacing uh, of later dead i think that benefits this song i mean this is you know sort of a funeral you know this this does have a funeral feel sometimes Mm. to it and and certainly you know you could say that I don't know if there's like a subliminal tip of the cap to Brent. I mean, again, it's always weird to me that like uh, the Grateful Dead were never more, they were never very explicit about paying tribute to people who died that were close to them. And I think maybe that was just their way. You know, maybe they didn't want to acknowledge the casualties that were happening around them. Uh, You know, that would have maybe been too much of a bummer, you know, as they were moving forward. But Uh, you know you'd think maybe like a normal band would say this song's for brent and they would play he's gone or something and there's none of that but i guess maybe we can pretend that on some level this was a tribute to him when they played this song
3: i think it absolutely was i mean it's the it's not the first one after brent died i played another one earlier in this tour but so that this is where you can find a couple videos online of this show I think the he's gone is online and then the uh I need a miracle morning Dew" is online on YouTube if you want to search for those but the whatever YouTuber posted this show like very conspicuously dropped in a picture of Brent in the middle of this he's gone uh during the nothing's gonna bring him back part uh which uh you know sort of made the subtle message of this performance uh clear but, I, you know, it's one of those things where there's so much communication between the dead and their fan base that they don't even need to say this one's for Brent or something very direct like that. Like, everybody just kind of gets it. Like, I really think most people understood that this was a Brent tribute. And I just want to point out that He's Gone is, even though it was, yes, written about <laughs> Lenny Hart originally as we've gone over, It very clearly was about, you know, dead members of (laughs) with the dead recently deceased people in the Grateful Dead circle uh, by the end of its run. And this is a version that I think absolutely is haunted by Brent's ghost and is a very long version and a very emotional version uh, throughout. So I think that's why people a lot of people, I think, point to this as the highlight of this show. Uh, which i can understand and i think it's a pretty it's a pretty solid version and it actually goes really interesting places after the nothing's gonna bring him back sing along e part uh, but yeah it's um yeah it's definitely people's favorite for emotional reasons as much as musical reasons i think i mean did they
2: did they put video of brent during the actual show or was that just like in the youtube video that was unclear to me because it was like
3: uh it was a, a handheld camera uh footage of the show. Uh, but it had, you know, sort of a very amateurishly edited in Brent portrait shot <laughs> halfway through the performance. Which kind of looked <laughs> okay. like it, it was something from the original like VHS copy of that handheld fan cam footage, uh rather than something that like the uploader to YouTube put in there.
4: Uh
3: but yeah. Okay. I, I think you know even if you read some of the comments on archive or deadnet or places that talk about this specific show everybody was like oh yeah the brent tribute was amazing and he's gone so they they didn't need to say anything i think everybody just knew it
2: well i really like the uh you know the the Uh, Nothing's gonna bring him back part I feel like that is the highlight of this Song and like as you said like How long they stretch it out Like even more than usual Um just and that's Probably the best Jerry's voice sounds In this show Like just the soulfulness uh, Of his vocals I think really comes through There and the emotion Um that's being expressed there Um And it leads Into this section of the show where it is split into three tracks on the record and it's divided over two cds it's the no msg jam into drums into space space ends up being on disc three and it's about 25 minutes and you know you and i were talking about this um I think it's fair to say that this like twenty five minute stretch is like the most fe- like free form music that we've heard on a Picks so far, mm-hmm. uh, for better or worse. Like I feel like there's parts of it that work like fairly well, and other parts that seem a little direction like lacking direction. Um, I don't know if any of it is like truly like transcendent. Um, I would say like my favorite part would probably be the no MSG jam part, which is like a terrible name. I don't I, I don't know how they would have credited it, that otherwise if they just would have called it a jam or if they would have just put it as part of He's Gone. Um, I mean, it does feel like its own thing because it's sort of this like jazzy instrumental where it's like really like Bruce, Vince, and Phil playing off each other.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting that like and Bruce mentioned this in uh, This Is All the Dream We Dream." that one of the ways that they would improvise and sort of, I think, try to cut down this huge sound into a more manageable subset of, of the, the Dead's lineup at this point was that they would sort of organize these little trios of band members and just let those three people improvise off each other for a few minutes at a time. And so this one breaks down where it is just Phil and the keyboardists, and to my ears the drummers are gone for sure. I'm pretty sure Bob and Jerry are gone as well, and so you just get to hear this very jazzy interplay between the three of them, which calls back to you know some of these like early '70s '73 '74 uh, feelings where the you had this more jazzy dead style and i think part of that is bruce bringing the piano back into the mix but also phil taking that sort of jazz bass lead bass role on as well uh and that's yeah that's the part i like the best of this segment as well uh it very it turns into like a pretty dark show all of a sudden which is funny after you know the samson Iko ico opener and looks like rain being you know moody a moody song but still very arena rocky and has a big emotional finish and he's gone being the sort of memorial ballad for a a, a fallen compatriot and then <laughs> the jam just goes into a a really dark direction and stays extremely freeform for as you say about a half hour in the middle of this show which I, I too again it's another thing that I like more on paper than I like in My Years, <laughs> where it's nice that The Dead got so strange, even at this time where they were at the height of their late popularity, where everybody thought A Grateful Dead show was this stereotypical happy, hippie, noodly, like we're dancing the China Cat Sunflower sort of experience uh instead it's like it's just as weird as the the sea stones from 74 that they cut out right like yeah i I don't think this is substantially more accessible than all this music that we theorized just a couple volumes ago was too strange to release (laughs) and then here we go like just a couple volumes later and it's you know jazz odyssey grateful dead style right uh,
2: at madison square garden and I was—I almost feel like the Seastones stones was like more accessible than this. Like I feel like even that <laughs> yeah. was a little more accessible. Um, I mean, again, yeah, like I agree with you. Like the—the the idea of this, I really love, and I love that the dead would go off a lot like this at this point in their career at Madison Square Garden, you know, and and just assume that people would would go along with them. And it was also, you know, as you were talking, it kind of made me think, too, like, it, like if we're going to say that he's gone was this, you know, largely unspoken or, like, understood tribute to Brent. I almost wonder if, like, this jam was, like, an expression of, like, grief for Brent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just because, like you said, it, yeah. go, it goes in such a dark direction here, um, especially in contrast to how this set starts. You know which is very up and very arena rock and like let's party and this is like this is the anti-party you know like we're going we're going into hell here uh and parts of this um and i just wonder you know uh, on some level if if it's an expression of just the darkness that was in the band you know that they weren't that they were sort of trying to deny Uh, Was there, you know, but it just comes to the surface in this jam.
3: other than the idea i need a miracle that we're coming up on this is a pretty down set for the rest of the show right I mean, there's nothing there's no party songs for the rest of this entire performance uh it is either very slow emotional songs or freeform jamming uh with you know every effect available to a guitarist and keyboardist switched on at the same time not to mention the drums i mean this drum segment is full-on psychedelic drums which i could again i can appreciate but the the phasing that is going on if you listen to the show on headphones is truly nauseating to me (laughs) like (laughs) it it is setting off my my inner ear in some way that i can't uh, quite biologically describe but i start getting dizzy at some point because they've got like Uh, you know, Mickey's playing his talking drum. There's, they're both just like banging on their roto toms like as hard as they can. And Dan Healy is just sliding that left, right balance back and forth, uh, you know, for all it's worth, uh, there's kind of a cool drony part at the end, which almost sounds like Phil is out there and playing bombs, but I think it's actually Bob Brelove because one of his jobs at this point was to segue from drums to space. So usually the drummers would sort of wind down whatever they were doing and he's off on the side of the stage looping in whatever pre-prepared uh, tones or MIDI, MIDI effects that he has available to kind of launch uh, the guitarist and keyboardists into the space part of that segment. So that's kind of cool to hear, but also the kind of thing that I only need to hear once. Right. <laughs> and, right. And, and not over and over again.
2: I mean, was that I mean, do you think like that was part of like why this show was picked, just because of the uniqueness of that of this set? I mean, because I feel like the other shows don't really have like I don't I don't feel like they're as freeform as this one from the yeah. run. And I, I, maybe, I think maybe that was part of the appeal, I don't know.
3: Right. Knowing that Dick is such a huge fan of Early Dead, especially, uh seventy three, seventy four specifically I do hear like these things I keep bringing up about hearing that sort of jazz rock uh, element that really was like the the 73-74 dad was most representative of. I think it's possible that Dick's ears were catching that same sort of reference or that same resemblance, and that's what made this show stand out to him versus the later shows on the run that came out on the road trips. I, I do think that this exceptionally freeform second set or the the direction that it goes. Yeah, you're right. It's probably pretty unique for a dead show at this time. And that might have been what made it stand out to Dick. Um, but it's all guesswork, really. I yeah. don't know. I mean, this is, it's a very strange show to pick. Right. Uh, I mean, even for the fan club uh, release series that this was.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we keep saying this, but again, I feel like it's a show that would appeal to a collector who is looking for something unique, maybe even more so than something that's like pleasurable, <laughs> like to put on, you know? Because <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. that, that's the impression I get from the show, like listening to it. Um, we go into "Standing on the Moon" after that free form section, and this is a song from Bill To Last, and I actually think it's a it's a pretty like beautiful song in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Although the thing that trips me up about this, uh, about this performance is the rhythm section to me is so halting and irregular. (laughs) Um, And I don't know what the deal is. It's like the song just gets slower and slower. It just sounds like a car that has like four flat tires you know <laughs> trying to move forward you know it, it 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 it's i don't know it just sounds hamstrung when i listen to it uh, w- and yeah. w- like, how'd you feel
3: well i'm pretty sure that jerry is the one that slows it down it, it starts out pretty slow and they do the first verse and then jerry just hits like the chords Incredibly hard and incredibly slow until the rest of the band slows down to the even slower tempo that he wants to perform the song at. Uh, I mean, that's what I hear at least. I don't know if that's actually true, but to me, I think Jerry wanted them to play it even dirgier <laughs> than they came out uh, came out swinging from space with. And maybe that's part of too why the you know nearly half hour of free form jamming doesn't really deliver for me is that i like standing on the moon a lot i think it's a pretty nice like late period ballad for the dead that maybe didn't ever get like the classic version that it deserved just because the band wasn't really at its sharpest when that was in the repertoire uh but it, this what you really want i think from a dead show of this era is that like very out there psychedelic exploration that then delivers with a big emotional payoff And you maybe get that later on in this show with the morning dew, which is quite good. But the standing on the moon doesn't quite get there, Uh, so you don't really get the tension release that you want from like an eighties, nineties show with a big drum space segment.
2: Yeah, and it goes on for nine, like nine and a half minutes too, which is a and you and you feel those nine and a half minutes just because of how (laughs) slow it feels. And then from there, we go into another almost six minute jam, uh, which is called Lunatic Preserve. Uh, Another example of uh, sort of a wacky name being put onto a jam uh, segment. But yeah, I mean, it's like they go back into space after standing on the moon.
3: Yeah, There's almost three spaces in this show. There's a pre-space space, space, there's space, and there's the post-space space, and that's what we got here.
2: And again, I feel like it's another instance where in theory, I like what they're doing. I appreciate the effort or the uniqueness of uh, of uh, of this set, but it doesn't quite pull off for me here.
3: Yeah, there's there's just no anchor to to these jams. Like that's what makes them feel especially freeform, because everybody's just kind of doing a lot without really electing somebody to stay back and hold down a structure to the song. And again, I'm really disappointed in what the drummers are providing here because when it starts getting weirder and weirder after Standing on the Mood gives way to this freeform jam, they just totally drop out. And then when they come back, it's again the same like they're just hitting everything they can reach. There's no like if you had like a really strong backbone to this jam i mean i think it would sound a little bit like those like 73 74 playing in the bands which are clearly drawing upon a sort of electric miles feel right right which that that era early 70s electric miles everybody's going off in their own directions and there's a whole lot going on but you always have like a really tight rhythm section keeping some sort of motor behind it and the dead at this point they just don't have anybody doing that and Maybe at some point, Bruce would be capable of doing that, but I don't think Bruce in his second show is gonna step up and say, "Oh, I'll hold down the bass line for you guys while you're all playing with every effect in your in your rig and uh you know soloing like you're the lead instrument
2: well and of course, the big difference between well one of the big differences between seventy three seventy four dead and ninety dead is that there's one drummer in yeah. you know early seventies. And it's just easier for one guy to hold it down. And, I mean, obviously, Bill was one of the great rock drummers of all time, especially in that era. Uh, and uh, now you have two guys in 1990. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just harder to have that uh, sort of foundation. Uh, so <laughs> we, we transition, I think, hilariously out of <laughs> Lunatic Preserve into I Need a Miracle. Which is just, you know, and I say this affectionately, just like a a totally stupid song that I <laughs> I, I, I kind of like in spite of itself. I mean, this song, it originally appeared on Shakedown Street, and I think at the time it was perceived as, well, this is the Grateful Dead trying to have a hit, you know, because it sounds like like a rock song from the late 70s, essentially. Mm. And it ended up having a life in dead culture because you know this was the thing that you would hold up if you were trying to find a ticket from people. I need a miracle. So right. uh, it, it has that resonance. Um, but yeah, I mean, this seems like another textbook example of Bob pulling out a fun, crowd-pleasing song once things get a little too weird. And really, I mean, yeah. Bob is probably just just like chomping at the bit at this point because there's been a <laughs> lot true. of you a know, yeah a lot of free form playing you had a very dirgy uh you know uh, song but you know in in the middle there with uh standing on the moon and he's like all right all right guys let's party again <laughs> i'm gonna play i need a miracle uh yeah and I gotta say, I mean, in a way, I didn't mind it because it was like, okay, well, I know what I know what we're doing here at least, you know, th- this is at least logical to me. Uh, it's not great, but it's coherent, so I, right. you know, so I appreciated it on that level.
3: Yeah, no, it is really funny how Bob just kind of drops out of this show. Like it's at this point, what like an hour since looks like rain. Uh, yeah. And it's been all Jerry songs or just free form improv. So, yeah, I mean, I Need a Miracle is a really hilarious choice <laughs> coming out of an hour of cosmic exploration to start singing about I need a woman who's twice my age <laughs> and height and whatever the rest of the song goes into. I mean, it's yeah, it's fine. It's it's a, a nice Bob song that you can throw uh, late in a set uh and it's funny i guess that jerry then immediately steers the mood <laughs> back to apocalyptic mournful seriousness <laughs> with a morning dew which is a really great morning dew and it's you know if if you had put that at the end of uh you know drum space maybe it all would have played a little better for me right because morning dew i mean there's not really to to that I've found really a bad version of this song. And it always seems to bring out the best of Jerry, no matter how old he is or how tired he is, uh, both vocally and in terms of his guitar playing. And yeah, this is a really good one. And uh, yeah, it gives the show a nice, uh, you know, resolution after a very long period of, of testing the audience.
2: Yeah, it it is funny, like how it's almost like Bob is like, well, let's change the subject, and he plays, you know, we go into I Need a Miracle, and Jerry's like, no, we're going back into the darkness. <laughs> I'm gonna do Morning Dew. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Morning Dew, and again, like we've sung the praises of Morning Dew. This is another song that ends up on a lot of Dick's picks, but like we don't complain about it like we do with maybe Cold Rain and Snow because it's always great to hear. Yeah. Morning Dew, and I think this is another song, and you just alluded to this where. Um, even when Jerry gets older and his voice is more ravaged and, uh, and the dead aren't the band that they once were, this song still really comes off well. And I think in a way it has a different kind of resonance when you hear like an older Jerry Garcia play it. Um, it doesn't have, I think like the clarity of a morning dew, like from the early seventies, like that, just like that. Perfect sparkling beauty that those had. This is more of like, you know, like a more of a lumbering, rough around the edges type beauty, you know, like you've been, you're sort of struggling to get back to where you were, but you're still able to pull it off. Like that sort of, um, like melancholy, uh, that comes from Mm -hmm. that. And I think that really comes through in here. And, you know, again, you know, we've talked about MVPs. I think, this is also another MVP. I, it, it, it's sort of like calling Michael Jordan the MVP. You know, like it's a boring choice. You don't ever, you don't always <laughs> just want to pick Michael Jordan as the MVP of the league. That's like also the case with Morning Dew. Um, but yeah, it's it's just amazing like how often this song delivers. There's got to be bad versions of this. Maybe sure, we'll, yeah. we'll ask our listeners tweet us bad versions <laughs> of Morning Dew. I'd be curious. There's probably like some like version from like 1984 where they played it super fast or something <laughs> yeah you know but like yeah but otherwise yeah this, this song has one of the highest batting averages of of any grateful dead song
4: mm.
3: yeah and it gives yeah it's it's a great way to end a set and then i mean jerry keeps it bleak <laughs> <laughs> with a an encore of it's all over now baby blues so yeah it's a real downer of a show man uh yeah, yeah. but yeah yeah I like this Baby Blue. As you said, I think it's, not, it's probably not the best version they played. And I like that Baby Blue is, it might be the longest running of the Dead Dylan covers because they played it all the way back to the early, early days of the Grateful Dead when they were playing it like them style, like a sort of psychedelic, uh, almost birdsy electric folk rock version of It's All Over Now Baby Blue uh now it has sort of been 80s dylanized like a lot of the dead's covers but uh yeah it's i think it might be my favorite bob dylan song so i'm not going to complain uh and it's it's a fitting encore for this show if they had played one more saturday night or something <laughs> that would have uh been a bit of a desperation move
2: yeah it's it, i think this is like like i said before i think this is my favorite dylan cover that the dead do um mm. you know again like i said i there's Garcia band Dylan covers that I like a lot. Um, and I think it, you know, and I and I definitely like Jerry doing Dylan more than I like Bob doing Dylan. Although I think I I appreciate the spirit that Bob brings to it and the enthusiasm. Um, but and I and I just really love this as a set closer because it's not what we expect, certainly from the dead. I mean, typically they will end like with more of an upbeat rock song like leave people cheering at the end and this is definitely more (laughs) of like a down type song um but it totally works for me i really like that i really like that vibe and and um the morning dew into it's all over now baby blue i think that's just a really great uh one two punch at the end of a very weird kind of rocky set you know, like yeah. they—they kind of—you know—there was a lot of turbulence on this set, but they actually brought it down to a fairly smooth landing uh, at the end. Mm. Uh, and this is us bringing a smooth landing to our first season of this show because right. uh, we're we're going to be taking a a, a short break. I, yeah, I, on Twitter, I was calling this our spring tour. Uh, and we're going to have a summer tour that launches, not in the distant future, probably, you know, I guess we don't have a specific date yet, but it'll probably be about a month and a half.
3: Yeah, like late June, early July, somewhere around there.
2: And uh, I'm excited to get into this next run of Dick's Picks because um, it's, it's pretty much like all killer, you know, these next several ones. Mm -hmm. um i like dick's picks 10 i believe is is a 77 show uh and then 11 is like a 72 show and then like 12 is like a 74 so we're going to be hitting some iconic years uh on our summer tour
3: yeah and the years that dick knew the best where i really trust his ears whereas i think what's happening with like this set in the 80s sets is that Dick, it was just outside of his comfort zone, right? And maybe he didn't quite pick the best the best reflections on those eras, which is something that, you know, the dead has gotten a lot better at down the line. And as we talked about with this Road Trips uh, that pulls from other shows in this run, uh, there's there's a good way to portray this era of the dead, and maybe the full show treatment was not the right. Uh, choice in this case or maybe just picking the show is not the right choice but yeah (laughs) certainly a lot to talk about and some things to admire and some things to give you a headache or nausea or any number of other side effects (laughs) that you don't totally associate with listening to one of your favorite bands
2: i would definitely recommend checking out what is it it's like road trips Two volume one it's I volume think, two, number one. Number one. Yeah. Uh, um, I actually it's think it's quite good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like a really good record. I think, uh, and again, I mean, we talked about this with Dix Picks seven, like how uh, those 74 shows in, in uh, September of 74 in England, they're not necessarily like all that well regarded among fans. But like the way that, that Dick's Picks was curated, it's actually a really great Dick's Picks because they've really taken like the best parts they're cherry picking really well and i think they mm-hmm. actually do that on the on, on that road trips record i really like that and like there's a really cool dark star on there uh there's a china Rider on there uh you know there's some really great stuff so like i feel I think like it also
3: is like it might be just mixed a little better too to my ears like right. vince is a little less loud and, you know, again, one last poor Vince for this episode. <laughs> like, I don't think it was totally Vince's fault in a lot of cases. And, but some of the things that he's doing, I think, are much better experienced, you know, deeper in the mix rather than right out front with everybody else. So you crank up Bruce 50 percent, you crank down Vince 50 percent, and it sounds like a totally different band. Uh, so that's, that really does a great job of, you know, showing how this lineup could really excel. Uh, whereas this one is showing a lot of ways that they could go horribly wrong <laughs> and a few ways that they could excel.
2: But definitely, again, I, I think, you know, on the plus side of Dix Picks 9, I do appreciate the free-form nature of, like, a lot of this set, and it's, it's definitely fun to explore at least once and to mm-hmm. appreciate that the Dead were a band that would do this even at this point in their history, you know, that they would play a show like right. this that was... Kind of nutty and off the wall, but definitely a one of a kind show. Uh, and even though I feel kind of bad that we're ending our first season with the worst, is it fair to say this is the worst six picks of the first yeah, you know, uh, nine that we've done?
3: Yeah, five. I would. Yeah, I'd say that easily. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah hands down, uh, probably. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like we're ending with a round and round, like our. Uh, you know, like we're ending our set with a round and round right now. But you know, yeah. I, but again, you know, even even mediocre dead is still pretty cool to check out. So I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm I was glad to have explored this record.
3: Yeah, and plenty to talk about as always uh, here on Thirty Six from the Vault. So let us rest our uh, dead listening ears for a few weeks, and we'll come back fresh as daisies to talk about some great '70s
2: shows. Yeah, we're gonna. T- you could say that or, we're so. we're you could say that we're about to take a step back. And another step back. That's true. And another, another step, step back. back. Yeah. But we'll be back <laughs> soon. All right, guys. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon.
3: Yep. Thank you all.
2: 36 from the Bald is hosted by me, Stephen Hayden, and Rob Mitchum and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brickman and mastered by Matt Dwyer. All music is composed by Amar Sastri unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Powers the world's best
0: podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend.
1: All right, my show, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie, has hit 1 million podcast downloads because of you. This is huge. That means we're in the top. 5% Five percent of all podcasts among listeners. I want to thank you for listening to the show and supporting what we do. Iron sharpens iron. On this show, we dive into the most pressing news of our time. It's not easy, but it's necessary. Providing insightful commentary and a heavy dose of fact-based truth. We cover criminal justice, politics, social justice, policy, and how racism affects us all. Find indisputable with Dr. Rashad Richie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to our show so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate us with five stars. Now that we've reached 1 million podcast downloads, let's get our show to number one in the podcast charts.
0: Hey, music fans, we wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akemo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont.